on air. This is Monday night, October the 10th, for Fan for Racing Radio and our Charlotte Roval NASCAR Race Review and Hot Topic Sound Off. Uh, we are doing a one-hour review show tonight, which means that our Hot Topic Sound Off will start at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. So uh, look for uh, us to get into our Hot Topic 60 minutes in. Joining me for tonight's show is our co-host for tonight, and that is Jay Huseman. Welcome to the show, Jay. Thank you, Sharon. Uh, I know it's infrequent that I do the review show. Hopefully that's not the hot topic, but uh, I am here to help (laughs) out tonight to review the races over the weekend instead of preview. Well, hopefully you'll be back for Thursday night when we preview, but uh, I I get what you're saying. (laughs) I just, I just don't oh. want to be the hot topic. I, I was at one of my at the local tracks this weekend, uh, so, yeah, I don't want to be the hot topic here tonight. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. I don't think we have to worry about that. Uh, during our first half hour tonight, Jay, we are going to do some short track news. Uh, we'll also review the Arkham Menard Series season finale that took place at Toledo Speedway this weekend. And then we'll give a brief update on the ARCA West and the ARCA Truck Series. At uh, the top of the hour, we will then review the Xfinity Series and the Cup Series playoff races that took place this weekend out at the Charlotte Roval. Two very interesting races. Uh, Again, Hot Topic Sound Off will start at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time, and that will be with our Fan for Racing crew. So uh, let's uh, go ahead and get started with some short track news. All right. Well, you keep mentioning the uh, the hot topics. It's full of hot topics. So you mentioned uh, two of the races, some interesting races, uh, some upset feelings, and we've set some playoff grids. So there'll be a lot to talk about there once we get to that. But as always, some great short track racing throughout the country again this past weekend. Absolutely. Precinct Carey headlined the Saturday winners at Thompson Speedway. Ronnie Williams uh, uh, will lead the Phoenix Communications Field 150 to take the NASCAR Wheel and Modified Tour green flag. Uh, but uh, it was actually Priest and uh, Carey that took the headlines. And that isn't a surprise for uh, for Ryan Priest. Uh, we've seen that with uh, many drivers when they go back to run these other classes, late models, modified, um, that they, they're able to win. But it also keeps them sharp and relevant. Uh, I know some fans don't like them showing up, but other fans do. I mean, you get a chance to see Ryan Priest. So I like it, and I know promoters uh, definitely like it. Absolutely. Also, Caden Honeycutt breaks through for his third career Cars win at Ace Speedway. So that was pretty cool to see happening. And that's another one. Great story. We've seen uh, Caden Honeycutt in some of the top three series in the ARCA series. That's a name that you're going to start hearing more and more, and this is why. You say you mentioned he got his third career Cars win. And when they start knocking off wins left and right, uh, other teams in a series start taking a look at them and moving them up. Okay. And then um, the Jags All-Star Tours is ready to close out their season at Winchester this Friday. So that will be a big race. 
It certainly will be. I know we, we talked about that a little bit already on the preview, and I'm sure we will again this week um, as we get ready for some of these more final events or last few races of a series. Uh, looking forward to that. Uh, it does mean the end of the season, so that's always a little bit of a damper. I know we, we, we talk about this, uh, you know, that break is nice, but it's like a week, maybe two, and then we're like, uh, what do we do? <laughs> Exactly. Now, I will say, too, that NASCAR drivers are always uh, part of the feature that take place out at uh, Racing America. Kyle Larson uh, has approval to seek an Indianapolis 500 opportunity. So uh, that should be interesting. Another driver expressing some interest in that. (laughs) Excuse me. That is very interesting. We heard a lot of talk about uh, Kyle Busch when he... Um, switched over to Chevrolet and Richard Childress Racing. For Kyle Larson, we know that he does a lot of outside racing. I think that would be a huge crossover one. I know he's done pretty good when it comes to racing at uh, Indianapolis with the NASCAR Cup Series. So to see him in an IndyCar, we know the talent he has as far as a driver. So, yeah, that's going to be super interesting if that comes to fruition. Absolutely. Uh, Flow Racing has a lot of uh, recaps uh, from the racing that took place this past weekend. You can always watch uh, the replays of uh, those races and uh, and, uh, catch up on everything that's uh, happening in the short track racing world. Well, and one one of those, the uh, All-American 60 60 there at Jackson Motor Speedway, your capital city raceway, was a great weekend. Uh, I got to be on there a little bit for the local racing classes, and then we had Wes Gualtry with the CompCam Super Late Models. So that was a big weekend for us there at Jackson Motor Speedway. And you said a few uh, up there that you could watch. Uh, there's a lot. <laughs> you can spend hours and hours uh, a week, take a week off yeah. and just watch racing off of Flow Racing. <laughs> Exactly. If if uh, you didn't catch the races this weekend, you can certainly catch the replays, and there are plenty to choose from. Uh, Cole Duncan wins the All-Stars finale. Tyler Courtney is crowned a champion in Fremont, Ohio. Uh, Perfect Talladega Night helps Tim McCready clinch the Lucas Oil title, and Justin Grant ends a six-month USAC midget drought at the Harvest Cup. So, uh, again, just so many different storylines to follow over at Flow Racing. And um, we will also, on Thursday, be talking about other uh, racing action that will be taking place in the upcoming weekend as well. And, again, so many of those races are available for live streaming uh, through either Racing America or Flow Racing. And they get you up to speed. Uh, you just added something there I didn't know. I had heard that Tim McCready had won that race over at Talladega, the Hornets Nest. I didn't know that clinched the championship for him, though. So congratulations to Tim McCready with the Lucas Oil Late Model Series. Yes, indeed. Um, okay. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and move on now, uh, Jay over to the Arkham and Art Series so that we've got plenty of time to talk about it because there's so much that happened uh, with this Arkham and Art Series season finale at uh, Toledo Speedway this weekend, uh, one of of Arkham and Art Series' uh, most storied tracks and home track for the Shore Lunch 200 that took place this Saturday, October the 8th. 
Um, there was championship drama, hot tempers, and a thrilling fish finish were all part of the equation that made up Saturday's Shore Lunch 200 at Toledo Speedway. But when it was all said and done, it was Nick Sanchez and Sammy Smith as the drivers who were left smiling. Uh, Sanchez, the driver of the number two Rev Racing Chevrolet, finished sixth and claimed the Arkham and Art Series Driver Championship over GMS Racing's Daniel Dye. Well, to start with, okay, talking about the championship, uh, unfortunately I saw where Daniel Dye had a mechanical problem dropping out of the race. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one was going to be, I would have been happy for either driver winning this championship, the work they have put in throughout the year. Daniel Dye been clipping away point by point, had it down to two points. I would have mm-hmm. liked to see them race for it, you know, on the track. Um, but uh, throughout the year, Sanchez also had his problems in mechanical, so kind of put him in that position. Both of them very deserving. Nick Sanchez does come out as your victor, even with the sixth-place finish. So congratulations to them and Rev Racing. Absolutely. Meanwhile, uh, Sammy Smith won the race after a three-wide pass on pole sitter Jesse Love and Grant Denfinger with two laps left to give the number 18 Cowbush Motorsports team the Arkham Menard Series owner's championship. Uh, so that was pretty cool to see as well. Uh, Sammy Smith uh, not able to run the whole season uh, because of his age, but was able to contribute toward that owner's championship. And yet again, uh, a name you're just going to hear so much more about, uh, possibly at one of NASCAR's top three, if not here in the Arkham Menard Series. Yes, yeah, Arkham Menard Series next year. Uh, we have already know he won two Arkham Menards East Series championships now. So, again, it's time for him to move up, and he's showing why, uh, picking up this victory uh, yet again. And as you mentioned, not even able to run the full schedule, but definitely maximize the starts he did get. He definitely did. The day uh, started out rough for Sanchez. He didn't get to turn any practice laps in his car when the team discovered a problem with the engine of his number two. Uh, The team went to work and put in a backup motor. Uh, That did allow him to turn in an eighth fastest lap during qualifying. Dye, who entered the race just two points behind Sanchez, as we mentioned earlier, uh, qualified second and trimmed Sanchez's advantage by leading the opening lap to gain that bonus point. Uh, The race was tight throughout the first portion of the race, but they began to take uh, a turn after the first of two breaks on lap 75. Sanchez stayed out to gain a bonus point for leading a lap, while Dye's number 43 didn't get up to speed during the restart, which dropped him to the tail of the lead lap. But despite that setback, Dye marched back through the field and was right up behind Sanchez when the caution flag waved for the second race break on lap 126. Things were setting up for a tense showdown between Sanchez and Dye, but it wasn't to be because shortly after that restart following the second break, Dye's car suddenly slowed and he limped to pit road with a broken right front ball joint. The mechanical issue dropped Dye more than 30 laps down, which all but guaranteed that Sanchez would get get that Arkham Art Series championship. 
And this is how it's been all season long, just an absolute back and forth. As I mentioned, both, both of these drivers are very deserving of this championship, and it came down to that one problem. As it, you watch the race throughout its entirety, the points back and forth, uh, you know, like I said, it's been that way all year. So, unfortunately, with the celebration of victory, you have that heartbreak of defeat on the other side of it for Daniel Dye and the GMS team. Yeah, yeah it is unfortunate, but it is a part of uh, any kind of sport. Uh, but the drama was continuing all the way to the end of the race, uh, and uh, now we're talking about the battle for the Arkham Knight Series uh, uh, win for the Shore Lunch 200. It came down to the final four laps. Love started from the pole and dominated the race in the number 20 Venturini Toyota. Uh, the team looked to secure the series owner's championship. However, in the closing laps of the race, the 2015 Arkham Art Series champion Grant Infinger began to close the gap on Love and challenged him for the race lead uh, with just four laps left. Grant uh, Infinger initially cleared Love for the lead, but Love crossed over and drove back under the driver as the two battled for the race lead and the victory. Uh, However, Sammy Smith, who was riding in third, uh, made his presence known, and during turn one with two laps left, Smith used the front bumper of his number 18 Toyota to move Love out of the way, and of course that opened the door for Smith to dive under both cars of Love and Infinger to take the race lead and steal the victory. Uh, no, but he didn't wreck anybody, uh, but he did use the bumper, and it pushed uh, Jesse Love up the track a little bit into uh, Grant Infinger. Everybody kept control of their car. Uh, but uh, it put Sammy Smith into the lead, uh, and that win was his series best sixth win of the season. It was enough for the number 18 Cowbush Motorsports team to win that owner's championship. Uh, Love, however, was not too happy with the move, uh, and he attempted to show uh, Sammy Smith exactly how he felt, but uh Officials intervened and then escorted him away uh, while they marked. <clears throat> so there was a little drama at the end of this race. I don't know if you saw that well, finish. I, I, did, uh, I did see some clips of it, and it's not the first time we've seen what looks to be two vehicles in victory lane or one trying to celebrate and another one trying to prevent it. Um, I think back to, I think it was Robbie Gordon that really did a burnout alongside somebody feeling he had won the race. But for Sammy Smith, uh, you know, you mentioned it, it was part of the owner's championship for the number 18 of Kyle Busch Motorsports. They're still racing for not just the win, um, but the owner's championship. And you mentioned it. It wasn't a wreck, but it was a bump and run or a nudge um, that got him into that position. And I know depending on your stance uh, here at Fan for Racing, we have several opinions on that. <laughs> when it comes to the bump and run or nudge, um, especially on a short track. Uh, you, you almost, I want to say, kind of expect it. That's true, and we were talking about the closing laps, and, and as you mentioned, uh, those drivers, Jesse Love and uh, uh, Sammy Smith, they were racing for their owner's championship, and uh, they definitely both wanted that for their teams. Uh, so... It was an exciting race. Uh, so if you get a chance to watch 
the replay. I don't know if there is a replay of this race or not. Uh, but if there is a replay, you want to definitely catch it. Let me go and see if I can find out if there's a replay of this race. Um, October 8th, Flow Racing, no replay. It was on MAV-TV Motorsports. Sometimes if you have MAV-TV, they will do a replay. But you can watch the replay actually over at Flow Racing. Uh, they will have a, a replay of this race, and you can catch all of that action at uh, at, at uh, Flow Racing. Well, we talked about them a little bit earlier. Again, I appreciate the platform that Flow Racing provides for those that can't get to some of these races or catch up on them. Um, so, yeah, that's great. You get to go back and see it. I say uh, what I, the clip I saw was just of the uh, post-race uh, situation mm-hmm. there with uh, Sammy Smith and Jesse Love, not the entirety replay um, of the race, which was an exciting one. Uh, they always are. These are coming hard series, and I know, Sharon, thanks to you, I've been, had the pleasure to go to quite a few of them uh not recently hopefully we can get back to that but well, i'll be at one thursday level. night or friday night <laughs> arco west oh yeah which oh okay really they're at the bull ring in las vegas this thursday oh you didn't know i was oh, headed deal. to las vegas this weekend huh <laughs> no I, I didn't know you were going out for that one that's a big one yeah. to go to yep so Hopefully I'll get to see Sal when I'm out there too. Absolutely. That's great. And I I have to say thank you for not inviting me to that one because you know I am a gambler as we've talked about throughout uh, all the stuff we do here. So I appreciate you not inviting me to go into Las Vegas. (laughs) Well, actually, my brother uh, got tickets for us based on uh, as a birthday gift to me. So that was pretty nice of him. Oh, that's a good deal. Good deal. He, I know he's come to a couple of the races that I've been to, so that's great. Yep, yep. So, anyway, let's uh, go ahead and cover real quick here the uh, finishing order for the uh, uh, Shore Lunch 200. Uh, let's go three by three. Uh, we mentioned that Sammy Smith and Jesse Love came in second. It was Grant Infinger in third. And then you can pick up on fourth or six. All right. Fourth place was uh, Taylor Gray, another rookie in the DGR machine. Another name you're going to see a lot of. Followed by fifth place was Rajah Karuth in another Rev Racing one. And I'll hit something on him in a minute. But then sixth place we mentioned Nick Sanchez bringing home the finish that did secure him the championship. Uh, Rajah Karuth up until I think the last three races, uh, I believe, maybe three or four races, Raja Karuth was right in there in that points battle. He dropped back just a little bit and outside of range, but he had a great year, and Rev Racing's in good hands, I think, for for a few years here as their program has just been on point. Okay, we'll cover the uh, top ten here with Landon Pemilton coming in in seventh, Matthew Gould finished eighth. Greg Van Alt came home with that number nine finish, and Amber Balkin rounds out the top ten. Uh, and the standings for the Arkham Menard Series, the final standings. Do you want to cover that, Jay? All right. Let me see if I can get that pulled up real quick. Uh, 
That's great to see a couple you mentioned there just in the top 10, though, that have been guests here. Uh, Greg Van also a fairly regular guest here on Fan for Racing. Uh, Amber, I know, has been on at least once or twice. So the final standings, though, mentioned, um, yep, that's through all 20. It ends up being a two-point difference between Nick Sanchez and Daniel Dye. Raja Karuth, I mentioned, uh, ended up now 39 points back but had one heck of a season. Greg Van Alst ended up in the fourth spot. Uh, was 126 points back, but fifth place goes to Sammy Smith. Only made 16 of the 20 starts. You mentioned six victories on the year, uh, including this past one. They almost got fourth there. He was one point behind Greg Van Alst. So even in limited starts, comes home in the fifth spot there. Amazing. The next five were uh, Tony Breidinger, Amber Balkin, Brad Smith, Taylor Gray, and Jesse Love rounds out the top ten there in the Arkham Menard Series. I can't wait to see uh, how many of these drivers come back next season uh, for the uh, Arkham Menard Series to contend for that title. I'm, I'm really hoping Sammy Smith is one of those drivers. Okay, uh, now next up... <clears throat> The Arkham Menard Series is done uh, for the season, but I will tell you the Arkham West still has a couple of races, and one of them is this coming weekend. Uh, the Arkham West will be racing at the Bull Ring uh, for some reason. <laughs> Let me go to the West schedule. Arkham West will be racing at the Bull Ring this weekend, uh, October the 14th. Let me go to the broadcast schedule because that usually gives me a little more details. Uh, at 11.35 p.m. Eastern Time, which is going to be about 8.35 p.m. Uh, local time, that will be available on USA as a tape delay on Friday, October the 21st at 5 p.m., but it will also be available for live streaming on Flow Racing and ArcaRacing.com will have radio coverage. So uh, you can watch that live stream on Flow Racing this uh, this Friday night. Uh, that will be the penultimate race. Their season finale will take place Friday, November the 4th at Phoenix Raceway at 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, and that, too, will be available on Flow Racing. But radio coverage, in addition to ArcaRacing.com, will also be on MRN and Sirius XM channel 391 online, uh, I'm sorry, the XM channel 391, and online channel 981. So uh, that will be the season finale then for the ARCA West. So two more races for the ARCA West before the, the entire ARCA Menards uh, series uh, go on uh, their season break. When we talk about the uh, ARCA Menards Series West here, stay with me. I'm going to start with Cole Moore. He's in second place at 403 points. Seven points behind uh, is Tanner Reif at 396. Todd Souza, 390. But they are unfortunately 51, 58, and 64. I just wanted to show how tight that battle was. Jake Drew, that was a four-car battle there beginning of the year. Jake Drew has really stepped it up. Four victories in nine races and separated himself at the front. Uh, two races to make up 51, 58, or 64 points. 
going to be tough, but that battle there, Cole Moore, Tanner Reif, and Todd Souza, uh, like I said, it was a four-car battle, but Jake Drew said, I don't want no part of that. I'm just going to run away from it. Yeah, he really has. Uh, and so uh, I can't wait to watch the race at the Bull Ring. I've heard so many things about the Bull Ring at Las Vegas. Uh, I'm kind of tickled that I'm going to get a chance to uh, actually watch a race out there this Friday. So uh, I hope everybody else gets a chance to watch it. It should be an exciting uh, event. Uh, Jake hasn't won the last few races. There's been other drivers that have come in and won those races. Uh, So we'll see if he can get back in in the front uh, this week out at the bull ring. Well, and it could come down to a situation like we talked about uh, for Nick Sanchez. Once Daniel Dye uh, ended up out of the race, able to... I want to say not race, but ride where he was at. Uh, doesn't have to push it to secure the championship. Jake Drew, like I said, pretty comfortable position. Um, so yep. we'll see. You mentioned it. Um, I know, uh, I think it was Landon Lewis is one of them that has a victory that I think came here recently. Looking at the mm-hmm. others, uh, Cole Moore does have one victory as well as Tanner Reif having two. And yep, those are the only other ones other than Jake Drew. Uh, but you mentioned they have come here as of recent, so uh, we'll see. That might change. It might get closer than he likes going into that final race in November. <laughs> so time always tells the rest of the story. Uh, also, just a quick update on the NASCAR Truck Series. They did not race this past weekend, but their next race is coming up. The Baptist Health 200 will be at Homestead Miami Speedway at 115 p.m. Eastern Time on Saturday, October the 22nd. So that's not this weekend, but the next weekend. Uh, It will be televised on Fox Sports 1 and MRN and Sirius XM Channel 90 will have radio coverage as well. So stay tuned for that next uh, truck series race, the Baptist Health 200. If I'm I think I'm correct in saying that that is an elimination race for the truck series. It is. You are correct with that. And I was trying to pull up the driver points here real quick as we will get down to our final four championship contenders following uh, Homestead. And right now, loading. Yes, that is an elimination race. That will determine who the final four drivers are going to be. At uh, Phoenix. It will indeed. And uh, we, we just talked about him here in this Arkham Menard series. Uh, unfortunately, right now, Grant Enfinger, one of the truck series regular drivers in the A spot, is one of them that's under the cut line, as well as Ty Majeski, who just picked up his first career win to advance through a round. John Hunter Nemechek and Stuart Friesen. Those are your four. All right, let me go back to Stuart Friesen in a minute. But right now, those are the four that are below the cut line. The cut line is actually a tie between Christian Eckes and Stuart Friesen, tied at 3,086 points. Christian Eckes has the tiebreaker, which is the best finish in this round. So for the first two races, and I don't have it off the top of my head what the position finishing positions are between them, but I know they're tied, and the advantage goes to the best finish in this round. Yes, yes. So that's going to be interesting to see what happens uh, at uh, at that race at Homestead, Miami. And I know these drivers are looking forward to it. 
this will be uh, the race that tells us who the final four will be out at Phoenix. Four drivers will be eliminated after the race at Homestead, Miami. And just to continue up there right now at the top three, it's Ben Rhodes in third, Zane Smith in second, and Chandler Smith as your top two. Ben Rhodes only three points above that tie for the cutoff. So points-wise, still even in that battle of could be eliminated based on points. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, if you look at the driver point standings after Talladega, let's see. Oh, yeah, they repeated. Okay, they repeated the information. Yeah, they've got Ty Majeski, Chandler Smith, Zane Smith, and Ben Rhodes all above that cut line. Uh, but Ben Rose is vulnerable. He's just three points above that cut line. Um, and then Stuart Friesen and Christian Eckes are tied, like you mentioned, uh, below the cut line. So a lot can happen. John Hunter Nemechek within five points of that cut line. So it's uh, anything can happen at Homestead, Miami. It's going to be interesting to see what happens. Uh, ben Rhodes is typically pretty good on the 1.5-mile tracks, uh, but I've got a feeling we might see something happen like what we saw uh, in the Cup Series. Christopher Bell was below the cut line and won his way into the playoffs with that uh, race that just took place out of the Roval. I think we're going to see maybe you, that happen in the Truck Series. You're right, in that. That was an interesting one. We're going to review that here in just a minute. But you corrected something for me there. I said Ty Majeski got his first career win to advance. That was in this round. So I, I showed him in seventh. He, you mentioned it. He is locked in, um, which put yes. Ben Rhodes on the cut line. That tie between Eckes and Stuart Friesen is for the first spot out. Um, they need three more just to get in. So I apologize for that. I didn't realize that was in this round. Yes. Yes, that's in this round. So uh, that determining race will be at Homestead, Miami. Okay, we're going to go ahead and move on now to the Xfinity and the Cup Series. The Xfinity Series uh, was actually uh, at the Charlotte Roval this weekend, and uh, it was a big win for A.J. Allmendinger. He also recently won at Talladega. So uh, two in a row for uh, the races, but his fourth victory at the Charlotte Roval uh, at the age of 40, driving for team number 16, Nutrien Ag Solutions Chevrolet, with colleague racing and his crew chief, Bruce Schlicker. Uh, He won uh, his 15th victory in 89 Xfinity Series races, his fifth victory and 26th top 10 finish in 22, and his fourth consecutive victory at the Charlotte Roval, the series' most consecutive wins on a road course. Ty Gibbs finished second, posting his first top 10 finish in two races on the Roval, and his 19th top 10 finish this season. Noah Gregson posted his third-place finish his fourth top ten finish in four races at the Roval. And Sheldon Creed, who finished 16th, was the highest finishing rookie. Almondinger's four straight wins are also the second most consecutive wins at a single track behind Dale Earnhardt, who uh, did that at Daytona, Kyle Busch at Texas, 
Jack Ingram at South Boston with five straight wins each. So uh, he is uh, very close. Uh, if he does it again next year when they race at the Roval, uh, he's very close to uh, tying uh, those uh, great drivers uh, from NASCAR's past. And if you don't understand the strategy when it comes to a road course or a roval like this, A.J. Allmendinger talked about it. Winning at Talladega, he said he could go out and strictly try to win the roval race. The way the strategies play out, you kind of either got to choose to go for stage points uh, throughout the race or set yourself up to be in the right position to go for the victory. And that was what he wanted. He went out and did it. And this is why Colleg Racing wants him full-time, going to take him full-time back into the Cup Series next year with Colleg Racing uh, for this reason. He, he may go into the Cup Series as the defending Xfinity Series champion. Mm-hmm. That's true. Okay, after taking the lead late in the race, Almondinger went on to win the driver of the Cura 250. It was his fifth win of the year and fourth straight at the Roval. He's just one win shy uh, of tying those drivers that I mentioned earlier for the most wins at a single track. Ty Gibbs again finished second despite leading 24 laps. Noah Gregson finished third, followed by James Davidson and Justin Algauer, who round out the top five. Alex LeBay took the checkered flag in sixth. Brendan Jones, Josh Berry, Ryan Sieg, and Landon Castle round out the top ten. It was Almendinger who won the opening stage while Jones claimed the playoff point by winning the second stage. Uh, Dan, uh, Ryan Sieg, Daniel Hemrick, Riley Earps, and Jeremy Clements were all eliminated from the playoffs. There were eight lead changes among six drivers and nine cautions for 15 yellow flag laps. The average speed of the race, 70.771 miles per hour. Your thoughts, Jay, about those uh, top ten finishers? Well, I was kind of looking at there, there as you talked about it. Uh, seven of the top ten were playoff drivers of the 12 that were eligible. And even uh, Ryan Sieg, unfortunately, got himself a ninth-place finish. Wasn't quite enough uh, to continue on. And that's why we talk about this throughout not just the regular season, building up playoff bonus points, but in these – Round of three races, every point matters. Um, because Ryan Sieg had a great finish, had a great season made it, making it into the playoffs, but not going to be one to advance even with that top ten finish. The top three, four, well, let's go five, six. I'd say the top six uh, could have been any one of them as far as shuffling up. Very good road, road racers. A.J. Allmendinger, the king, if you will, at the top of that list. But Ty Gibbs, Noah Gregson, James Davison, Justin Algar, and then Alex LeBay uh, makes a few starts, generally on the road courses, driving the number 36, come home with the sixth-place finish after uh, starting 12th. So you can see that shuffling, and there's a reason that, that these guys road course, bring in road course drivers for these races because, again, Alex LeBay coming home in the sixth spot, uh, great finish for that number 36 team. Okay, three drivers finished outside the top ten. Sam Mayer, uh, playoff driver, finished in 11th place. Jeremy Clements, 14th. And Daniel Hemrick finished in 17th place. Also, there were a few uh, 
uh, people leaving the race early. Uh, Chris Wright had an accident on lap seven, ending his day. Josh Williams had a track bar issue. He left the race on lap 35. Marco Andretti, how exciting was that to see him at the racetrack? He was involved in an accident on lap 45, uh, taking him out of the race. Uh, Kaz Grala finished uh, with um, lap 59 with an accident. Um, Josh Bilicki was laps down. That looks like about six laps down. Uh, uh, so he only put in 66 lap, Pat, laps. Patrick Gallagher uh, had an engine issue on lap 67, taking him out of the race. Uh, Riley Earps was involved in an accident on lap 67. Uh, that took him out of the race. And then some drivers uh, finished laps down. Andy Lally uh, ended on uh, lap 69 of seven. Or I'm sorry, 69 of 72. Uh, Sage Karam out on lap 70 of 72, as well as Austin Hill. Uh, so those guys uh, finished laps down, uh, but they did finish the race. The margin of victory on this race: 0.582 seconds. And there are some great stories there. Unfortunately, the finish that they got is not one of them. You mentioned uh, Big Machine Racing had brought in Marco Andretti for his first NASCAR uh, race. Uh, Wished it had gone a little bit better for him, but I think we're going to see a little bit more of him here uh, as he's uh, won the 2022 SRX Championship now getting a start here in the Xfinity Series. I, I think he's got that racing bug back in him again. It sounds like it. And it sounds like uh, <laughs> we might see him again. Um, I know in the cup race, uh, Connor Daly uh, was in that race, and he really enjoyed it. But there were there were quite a few here in the uh, in the Xfinity Series as well. Preston Pardis was one of those guys, Scott Heckert. Uh, always good on road courses. Uh, Andy Lally was in the race. Patrick Gallagher. Uh, Marco Andretti we had mentioned already. Uh, James Davidson uh, coming home with that top uh, four finish. So uh, really good to see these other guys uh, cross over into NASCAR uh, for this event. Let's go ahead. And, and the other one there that... Uh, I'm sorry, okay. go ahead. The other one in there in the, in the middle was uh, 15th place. I know we kind of covered the top and the bottom, but in the middle, uh, finishing oh, 15th yeah. was Daniel Cavat uh, in the number Thank 26 you. for Sam Hunt Racing. Started 24th, moved up to 15th. So that's another one. And you're right. I mean, what that brings to the sport on both sides um, with the crossover, I think has been a really big thing, especially here in recent years, and I hope to see more of Yes, indeed. Uh, now, for the Xfinity Series, just to kind of put this into perspective, uh, they will also be racing this weekend out at the Bull Ring, uh, but that is not their elimination race. Uh, let's see here. They have actually uh, their elimination race was this past weekend out at the Roval. So they're starting the next three races for their round of eight. They'll race at Las Vegas Motor Speedway on Saturday, October the 15th. Uh, Then it's Homestead, Miami on Saturday, October the 22nd. 
and then Martinsville will be the next elimination race here in the Xfinity Series. That race will take place on Saturday, October the 29th. So three more races uh, for this round of eight, and we'll find out who the championship four are after my Martinsville. So what are the points as they stand right now going into this round round of eight, Jay? Well, as they reset him, it's going to be Noah Gregson at the top with 3,056. He's picked up uh, those 56 playoff points. The top eight, yeah, top eight now reset to 3,000. The bonus points you've picked up get added to that. So he goes to 3,056 as your leader. A.J. Allmendinger closing that gap up after winning the regular season championship, but dropping to, I think he started at fourth. He's now got 44 mm-hmm. points. He'll start at 3,044. Then you got Ty Gibbs at 3,038, 18 points back. 3,033 for Justin Allgaier. Josh Berry, this is where it starts to get a little closer to uh, that line already. Josh Berry at 3,022. Austin Hill at 3,018, Brandon Jones at 3,011, and Sam Merritt at 3,005. So the cut line for the four to go to the transfer would be Justin Algar in fourth at 3,033. Barry would be 11 back, uh, Hill 15 back, 22 back for Brandon Jones, Sam Mayer, uh kind of in that position of not quite starting out in a must-win situation, but he's certainly going to need to focus on, if not winning, picking up some major points, stage points, because he's got to climb over four drivers just to get in on points. So uh, this this round, I think, gets really intense about, especially, like I said, for the starting with Sam Mayer, Brandon Jones maybe even win already, because uh, waiting on points, you're going to put yourself in a major hole. Exactly, and the earlier they can get that win in the round, uh, the more comfortable they are uh, because a win right now puts them in the final four that can contend for the title at Phoenix. So uh, they want to get that win as early in this round of eight as they possibly can. Uh, So Martinsville is going to be exciting because that's the last chance race uh, for them to figure out who – who are the drivers that are going to be part of that final four? Uh, three races, so only three drivers will get in possibly on wins uh, and only one driver on points. But if they do like they've been doing in a lot of these series lately, uh, non-playoff drivers have been winning, uh, which leaves it open, uh, another seat open to get in on points. Sharon, the way our Brave, Brave Wings uh, link up is just amazing. I, that's kind of what I was going to highlight. Uh, you know, I mentioned it with <laughs> Ty Majeski, and I'd forgot his win came in that round. He didn't have to worry about mm-hmm. Talladega or the Roval. So the first race, very important, especially like I mentioned here, starting with Sam Mayer, Brandon Jones, get that victory, knock it out of the way, and you don't have to worry about points. The middle race, that one's kind of a, a I don't want to say a... a wait and see one but then at martinsville then you're going to ramp up for those that are in that position as we get ready for the cup series uh review 
Christopher Bell showed it. He had to go out and win, and he yep. did it. And that changed everything for those in the middle that may have been thinking they were good on points. Yep, that's right. Uh, you, you can never count on that, especially uh, with this next-gen car. Christopher Bell came from, and we'll move right into the Cup Series with that, Christopher Bell came from being below the cut line. At one point, I think he was four drivers, the fourth driver below the cut line, uh, and he went out there and won that race uh, to advance on to the uh, playoffs. Uh, of course, that meant disappointment for some other drivers, and we'll talk about that. But uh, Christopher Bell, at the age of 27 for Team DeWalt Toyota in the number 20 at Joe Gibbs Racing, and crew chief Adam Stevens took his third victory in 104 Cup Series races. It's also his second victory in 18th top 10 finish this year, and his first victory and second top ten finish in three races at Charlotte Motor Speedway's Roval. Kevin Harvick finished second, posting his third top ten finish in five races at the Roval, and his 15th top ten finish this year. Kyle Busch finished third, posting his second top ten finish in five races at Charlotte's uh, Roval. And Austin Sindrick was 21st. He was the highest finishing rookie of the race. Uh, I won't steal the thunder here from the points, so we'll get into that in a few minutes. Uh, but I do want to uh, get into the race uh, that took place there because it was, uh, boy, it was changing all the time if you were watching the points uh, throughout the race. Uh, but Christopher Bell won the Bank of America Roval 400 at Charlotte Motor Speedway for his second win of the year and the first at Charlotte and the third uh, career win. He pitted late in the race under caution and was able to move back through the field to take the lead from Harvick with just two laps remaining. That pit stop turned out to be the winning move of the race because he took on fresh tires that helped him to compete in those closing laps. Harvick finished second, followed by Kyle Busch, then it was Almendinger and Haley rounding out the top five. Busher, Wallace, Reddick, Briscoe, and Dillon round out the top ten. The pole winner, Joey Logano, finished in 18th place. Uh, there were playoff drivers that had some problems. Oh, I felt so bad for Daniel Suarez, uh, who lost power steering in the last stage and lost five laps doing repairs. He ended up finishing in 36th place, and I've seen posts from him today. Every part of his body is in pain today, uh, and that's the kind of effort it took uh, from him to try to do his very best uh, under very difficult circumstances. Uh, Ross Chastain made contact with the wall late in the race, and bent his control arm. He had to go behind the wall for repairs. He ended up finishing 37th. Kyle Larson had a toe link issue with 10 laps left and lost five laps, forcing a 35th place finish for the uh, defending champion. Austin Sendrick was in position to advance in the playoffs, but he ended up spinning on the last lap. Uh, so we'll talk about those drivers that advanced uh, to the round of eight and those drivers that were eliminated. But I will tell you, stage one was won by Joey Logano. 
Stage two was run by Ross Castain. There were 10 lead changes among eight drivers and four cautions for 10 yellow flag laps. There, also, there was also a six-minute red flag for a track repair on lap 108. The average speed of the race, 86.661 miles per hour. Jay, your thoughts about uh, those top 10 finishers? Well, wow, yeah, there is so much. Uh, just the top 10, um, awesome to see, and this is why we like the playoff setup the way it is. Christopher Bell, the only way he advances is to win the race, and he does it. Uh, some things maybe played into that. I know you mentioned four cautions. Um, I was driving home, so I had to listen to this on Sirius XM radio. I haven't actually watched the race yet, but I know throughout even just the portion I got to listen to, every three to four laps they were updating the points because it was changing that quickly. For Christopher Bell, it wasn't changing. He was always in that last spot. Uh, the only way was for him to, to win it. Uh, I think it was uh, one of the roads, uh, the signs, uh, sponsor signs that had come off their, its poles and gotten onto the track. They had to throw the caution for that. Then we had, you mentioned the, uh, the red flag for the track work. Mm-hmm. With that, just making that pit stop, had the second caution not come out, I still think he was going to run down Kevin Harvick. They were keeping an eye on that. But once you've got that second caution there in the final uh, few laps, that put him alongside Harvick. He had the fresher tires. Uh, you know, it was a don't make a mistake, and I think it was his at that point. But then you talk about these playoff drivers um, pushing a little hard. Kyle Larson, Ross Jastain both admitted they pushed a little too hard, got in the wall. That was what caused their problems on the car. But the mixture, you see Kevin Harvick no longer in the playoffs. Kyle Busch, A.J. Allmendinger as a, not even a series regular. He's just getting ready for next year. Colin Grayson been running uh, that car with multiple different drivers. And Justin Haley as your top five. Uh, two of them not even in the championship talk throughout the year. Uh, Kevin Harvick, Kyle Busch were in the playoffs but got eliminated. Then you got Chris Busch or Bubba Wallace, another two. Uh, Looking at the future right now, Chris Busher, uh, Chris Busher and Bubba Wallace, the future for those two teams, uh, RFK Racing and 2311, I think for next year, looks super strong. Uh, it's going to be interesting. I know I'm already on 2023. We're not even through uh, finishing up here. But that's what this finish tells me, you know. Uh, yep. Yeah, I'm excited about the championship this year, but there's storylines of what's coming over the next few years. A.J. Allmendinger going to be full-time next year. So that's what I like is you're not just looking at this year right here, right now. This is down the road, and these teams that are building momentum, you know, what more can you do if you're outside the playoffs but start building and, and building for next year? And these teams are on the uptick. Yes, indeed. And amazingly, there were only three playoff drivers who finished in the top ten. Christopher Bell, of course, who won the race. Then it was Bubba Wallace who finished seventh. And Chase Briscoe, who finished in ninth place. The drivers below the cut line, Denny Hamlin finished in 13th. William Byron, 16th. Joy Logano, 18th. Chase Elliott finished 20th. Austin Sindrick, 21st. Noah Gregson, uh, why is Noah Gregson in here? He's driving for orange he, points, I guess. There you go. Uh, he finished in 23rd. 
the Ryan Blaney, 26th, Kyle Larson, 35th, Daniel Suarez, 36th, and Ross Chastain in 37th. Uh, how how amazing to have so many of the playoff drivers finishing outside of that top ten. Well, and this is what I talked about with it, with it of depending on what position they were in. I know Joey Logano talked about it. He was in a solid position um, in points going into it. He went, started on the pole. He said he went for that stage one victory and that playoff point moving into the next round. He knew he would cycle back when uh, the caution, or when the stage break came, and he knew that. They took that chance, and, yeah, he said his car just wasn't the same. He wasn't going to get back to the front. There were so many others we just mentioned, though, Austin Sindrick, Chase Briscoe. I'm trying to think who else I heard him talking about that were managing their race because they were maybe in 10th, 11th, 12th, but they were watching points. It was a matter of making sure they got one or two points based on where they were in points and being fed that by their crew chief or spotter. As Sendrick gained positions, they were telling Briscoe, hey, you got to now pick up another one or two. So I, th- I think that was a matter of more managing their race, not that they didn't want to win, but they didn't, knew there were several up there that were strong cars. They were points racing, I mean, managing their points throughout that race. Yes, they were. Uh, a couple of drivers had some issues. Uh, jo- Danielle Caveat uh, had an engine problem that took him out of the race on lap 17. Joey Hand out on lap 79 with an accident. How disappointing for him. Um, but most of those were the only two uh, accidents or engine issues. Uh, the rest of these drivers, 27 cars finished on the lead lap. Uh, but uh, the rest of these drivers all finished a lap or more down. Uh, we'll start with Harrison Burton, uh, Mike Rockenfeller, and Todd Gilliland all finished one lap down. Josh Williams, J.J. Yaley, Loris Hesemans all finished two laps down. Uh, Connor Daly was out on lap 109. Uh, Kyle Larson and Daniel Suarez were out on lap 107. And uh, Ross Chastain, uh, lap 103. And when I say they were out, they're actually laps down. Uh, they did finish the race. They just didn't complete all of the laps. Um, uh, Connor Daly, another crossover driver that uh, came over from IndyCar, uh, I did see some uh, posts from him, and he was really happy uh, with uh, the race that uh, – the Charlotte Rover, and it sounds like he definitely wants to come back and uh, race some more in the NASCAR. And he admitted these cars are tough to drive. Well, and that's what uh, today, after I got home, I was able to watch. I was watching the uh, qualifying, and I know he had an incident there, talked about that. So I think he ended up with like six laps of practice. Hadn't even sat in the car until he got there for practice on, on Saturday. So he did a great job, unfortunately, did have that, that incident again during the race. Um, but like you said, it's not going to keep him down as he's looking forward to possibly doing this again. And I do hope to see him again um, to show what talent he has. As we always say, the, the actual finish doesn't always necessarily indicate how they ran um, the race itself. Oh, okay. Wow. So, okay, so uh, that uh, 
uh, is, is very uh, always uh, very good that we have the crossover drivers. The margin of victory in this race was a little bit more than the other race. Uh, it was a 1.790 second margin of victory, which tells you just how strong Christopher Brown's car was once he got out front. Uh, so that was quite a victory, and uh, it made it exciting. Uh, this, you know, this elimination race just reminds you that with the with the thrill of victory, uh, there is also the agony of defeat. Uh, Kyle Larson looks so dejected, um, and I know I'm getting ahead of myself here. So why don't you go ahead and talk about the points? Well, with the reseeding, then we did uh, unfortunately eliminate several drivers. So you mentioned uh, starting with Austin Sindrick, who at one point was in, spun on that final lap. Daniel Suarez, I know that's why he said he hung out there and fought that power steering issue. Uh, he ended up in the uh, tenth spot. Then Kyle Larson. Oh, that's right. I'm missing one because of uh, Alex Bowman. Alex Bowman had been eliminated. You mentioned Noah Gregson riding in the uh, 88 there, uh, or 48. I 48. still call it the 88. The 48. Um, to fill in for him and, and are still battling, battling in the owner's championship. But then you got Kyle Larson. So Chase Briscoe is the one that was in. He'll start in the playoffs now in the A spot with 4,009 points. Denny Hamlin at 4,013. William Byron at 4,015, along with Ryan Blaney at 4,015. Christopher Bell, with that victory and added those five bonus points, He's going to start this next round in fourth spot with 4,018. Three more above him, Ross Chastain, 321, or 4,021, sorry. Joey Logano, 4,026. And greedy as he is, uh, you got to be, Chase Elliott starts this next round at 4,046. Uh, he had a great car. He wanted those five more points because that would almost secure him being able to ride the next three races and get into the championship four if he doesn't get a win. Um, and he was one, too. With that spin, kind of pushed him down in the points, but he had those points cushions built up. So that's why those are stage points, uh, single points, and then five points for the victory, so important. Chase Elliott starting right back up at the top. Yes, indeed. Uh, so it's going to be exciting. Their next race is coming up here at uh, Las Vegas Motor Speedway. And uh, let me kind of give you the rundown here of the season and how that's going to finish up here. Um, they're starting their round of eight at Las Vegas Motor Speedway this weekend. Uh, and then they head to Homestead, Miami on October 23rd. And then it's Martinsville Speedway. So it pretty much mirrors the Xfinity Series. So Martinsville is the elimination race. And after that race, we will know who the final four championship contenders are that will compete for that championship title at Phoenix Raceway on November the 6th. So um, three more races in, and then the season finale. So uh, it's, it's winding down. Jay, and it's the intensity I think is really going to ratchet up. And I know we didn't see it quite as much here, a little bit with this Roval this weekend, but just looking at that point reset, I mentioned Christopher Bell in fourth is the cut line. Three points back, you got Ryan Blaney, William Byron. Two more points back for five points is Denny Hamlin. 
and Chase Briscoe at 4,009 is only nine points out. That's nine points, less than double digits throughout the next three races. So, yeah, you're going to see a lot of points racing within these races and a lot of extreme racing for a single position or two throughout these next three races. I think so. This, You know, none of the drivers are saying that these tracks are are in their favor with this next-gen car. So a lot can happen over these next three races. But we are at the bottom of the hour, and it is time for our NASCAR Hot Topic Sound Off. And joining us for tonight's uh, Hot Topics, uh, Jay, is Mike Orzel. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hello. Good to be back with everyone. All right. Uh, Mike, since you're uh, coming in at this point, why don't you kick it off with our first hot topic here tonight? Well, there was plenty of controversy this weekend, and I'll just pick one out, and we'll start with it. NASCAR says they are going to review the actions of Cole Custer on the last lap of yesterday's race. In case you missed it, it appeared that Cole Custer basically brake-checked the entire back straightaway, which allowed his teammate, Storehouse Racing teammate Chase Briscoe, to pass Austin Dillon and Eric Jones to pick up two of those crucial points. Those points ended up being the difference that allowed Chase Briscoe to advance to the next round of the playoffs. And had he not passed those last two cars, he would most likely have been eliminated from the playoffs. So it looks like there may have been some team orders or at least some shenanigans in play, potentially manipulating the end of the race to benefit the teammate. Okay, Jay, your thoughts on this? I really hope that nothing comes out of this. Uh, I only got a little glimpse of the replay of that. I can see where it looked like that. I don't know um, what kind of problems Cole Custer was having throughout the race. As I said, I I only got to listen to about the last 25 laps. Um, But I know they did mention it. I think Dale Jr. is one that specifically uh, pointed it out. I know NASCAR, in their statement, said they were going to look at it. However, we will not have a repeat situation of what we had uh, several years ago. I know Mike's referenced it here with Jeff Gordon and uh, MWR where they added an additional driver to a to a round. NASCAR has said they will not do that, and I, I like their stance on that. Um, to clarify that up front, this is putting them in a hard, hard box. I know as the rule is written, it says you got to give 100% at all times, and even going by what they're going to look at, the, the telemetry data of we don't know what kind of problem um, Cole Custer was having. I know Daniel Suarez mentioned uh, he had trying to think who was Corey LaJoy was upset with him because they got together. He didn't realize Suarez was having issues with his power steering. So don't know in the car if they find something as far as team orders and audio indicating that it was a, a directive. Uh, I think we're going to be in a world of mess because that didn't go well last time and it's not going to go well again this time. Uh, I hope that's not the case. That's all I can say at this point. I just hope that's not the case. Yeah, it's it's a bad look for NASCAR uh, to uh, if, if that is the case, and I hope it doesn't go there as well, Jay. Uh, but one of the things that kind of came out as I was listening to SiriusXM today is that if you look at the points, Chase Elliott, I'm sorry, Chase Briscoe was actually already in 
the playoffs before he made those passes. So uh, he had the tiebreaker for that. that He was tied, uh, and he had the tiebreaker and was actually in the playoffs before that move. So a lot of people have been bringing that up, uh, and it is legit, apparently. And uh, they uh, are saying that, you know, if if, uh, NASCAR can look at it, uh, but they're okay if nothing happens with any of the drivers uh, as far as who's in and who's out uh, because it looked like Chase Briscoe already had the tiebreaker in hand before that move even t- took place. So uh, that was good news to me uh, because we don't like, uh, as you brought up, Jay, to see NASCAR make changes several days after the race. Uh, to decide who's going to be in the playoffs and who's going to be out. So they made it clear right from the very beginning. Uh, and they probably knew that before I did because uh, I wasn't aware uh, that he was already in under the tie uh, situation and had the tiebreaker before that move. So um, I, I think it's all going to be okay. Uh, I, I don't know if they're going to penalize uh, Cole Custer or not, but I will say this. Um, The drivers have really pushed the limits uh, with regard to uh, doing things to help a team. The the closest thing I can come to in support of it, although this really has nothing to do with football, but players all the time block uh, in order to protect the guy who has the ball to run for a touchdown. So that's what this feels like to me. It feels like Cole Custer was making the block to protect his teammate who kind of had that ball in hand and was running to uh, race his way into the playoffs. Um, This is not football, but that's the closest thing I can come to uh, as far as an analogy. Um, NASCAR in the past has kind of frowned on uh, team owner team orders and things like that taking place. Um, we've got several examples that we've we've put out there that uh, of places where NASCAR did not make uh, a judgment call uh, with regard to whether or not uh, somebody uh, did something to help a team member. Kyle Busch has been. Uh, caught up in that, uh, we've questioned his spinning uh, to bring out cautions to help John Hunter Nemechek. Uh, and uh, let's see, there's several several examples that we've given. That's the only one that comes to my mind right at this moment. But um, uh, I, I, it's a slippery slope for NASCAR. There is no doubt about it. If they get into uh, navigating uh, what people are doing on the track and whether or not they're intentionally trying to manipulate the outcome of the race. Uh, so we'll see what the penalty, what happens with the penalty, but I am glad they are not making any changes to who is in and who is out of the playoffs. Mike, your thoughts. So Cole Custer's official explanation for this is he says he got run down onto the apron uh, on NASCAR turn two, and he thought he might have a tire coming down. Now, remember, Matt Kenseth said he thought he blew a right front when he took out Joey Logano at Martinsville a few years ago. So 
the I thought I had a tire going down is a convenient excuse sometimes. It's difficult to prove. Uh, now, there is obviously going to be video evidence of the, all the tires being up on the 41, but it's reasonable to say that the driver can't see the outside of the car. He doesn't know for sure whether or not all four tires are up. Okay, got it, sure. The bigger problem is the overall, what was the intent of the action? And Jay referenced the 2013 Richmond race where there was a big controversy with Michael Waltrip racing, Mm -hmm. intentionally causing a caution, intentionally manipulating the outcome of the race in order to get one of their drivers into the playoffs who otherwise wouldn't have been there. And that was a massive mess. And there were a lot of things that NASCAR did that really didn't have a basis in the rule book. And they kind of just made it up as they were going along to try and rectify a really, really ugly situation. And part of coming out of that was this 100% rule that you referenced. And to paraphrase the rule, it basically says that the expectation is that every team and every driver will do the uh, 100% of their best effort to finish in the very best position that their individual car and team is capable of. To my knowledge, there has never been an enforcement of that rule, but there's been several questionable circumstances where it could have and potentially should have been enforced. Sharon, you mentioned Kyle Busch intentionally spinning during a truck race to bring out a caution to benefit his uh, truck team that he owned with John Hunter Nemechek driving. But in the Cup Series in the past few years, there's been a few really clear examples coming potentially coming directly from the team. For example, 2020, in the fall Martinsville race, Denny Hamlin was racing to try and get into the final four. He had some car issues. I think he had a bad tire or something on the car and was losing positions. He had come up to Eric Jones somewhere in the mid-teens, and over the radio, Eric Jones was told, quote, don't pass him, Jones. Those were words that were told to Eric Jones over the radio, and Eric Jones did not pass Denny Hamlin. Denny Hamlin ended up advancing into the championship four. That came from the team. In 2021 at Atlanta, Kurt Busch was racing against Kyle Busch for the win. His teammate at the time, Ross Chastain, with the other Chip Ganassi car, was actively blocking, even though he was several laps down, was actively blocking to benefit Kurt Busch, his teammate. Whether that's, like Sharon referenced, kind of like a football team blocking to benefit the, the guy carrying the ball, I don't know. But it's pretty hard to argue that Ross Chastain in that moment was doing the very best that he could to finish in the very best position that the 42 car could possibly finish in. Another example was from earlier this year at the second Daytona race. Denny Hamlin said over the radio, at the end of the stage, I will lift to give Martin the position. At the time, his teammate Martin Truex was very close to the cutoff line, trying to get a couple extra points in order to advance into the playoffs. And you watch at the end of stage two, the 11 car who was leading slowed down and allowed the 19 by to allow Martin Truex to get those extra points. So that's another example where a driver intentionally did not finish in the best position that they were capable of finishing. In all three of those instances, NASCAR took no action. At this point, it's really hard to say that that 100% rule is even a legitimate thing anymore. Yes, it's still on the books. But at this point, if NASCAR were to try and enforce it, an example in this circumstance with Cole Custer, it would almost certainly end in a really messy appeal, and anyone appealing that penalty would immediately point back to these examples and others where something like this happened, and NASCAR took no action, so why are they taking action on me now? It's a really messy situation to be in, and through a series of years of lack of enforcement of this rule, NASCAR's put themselves in the position where even if they want to do something, I don't know that they can at this point because previous lack of enforcement has set a precedent to say that even though the rule says you can't do it, 
this behavior has been basically okay because no one's been penalized for it. I'm not sure where to go from here. Okay, Jay. Oh, where do I? <laughs> I'm going to agree with Mike, who is my friend, but we have differing opinions. I'm curious as to why the one that got left out was Chase Elliott blocking Kevin Harvick at Bristol, allowing <laughs> Kyle Larson to win the race. But he has the point. This has happened before. Second off of where do you draw the line? I know, Sharon, you went to, went to football, but Mike gave several there uh, of that. And there are other ones. Where on super speedway racing, a car drops back to draft with another teammate, whether it be um, car owner teammate, a manufacturer teammate. We've seen different things like that where it does still happen. So at what point do you draw that line? Um, and this is not, not even whether or not Cole Custer did it. I mean, you've got to establish that first, of whether or not there was true intent. And there were several. The specific one I recall was, uh, Mike mentioned, uh, Eric Jones and Denny Hamlin. There was clear audio of that, of do not pass him. Uh, I don't recall the one of... Um, Denny Hamlin with giving uh, Truex a couple of stage points there um, specifically. But I know the one between Eric Jones and Denny Hamlin, I recall that because I'm like, that is one where there was clear audio. The one with uh, going back to the Michael Waltrip situation was there was never direct, clear communication. It was my arm itches, you know, maybe you should move it. He said he moved it and his, you know, he spun out. So I, I didn't understand how they didn't, if they were going to take action and set that precedence, how it didn't happen and start there. So I think Mike is right. They, they're going to have a tough time trying to get a penalty to be upheld. Um, you know, they can issue the penalty, but if, if it's appealed, we've seen that this year, there'd be a very good case to make of, hey, you haven't before, why are you now? Now, at some point, the precedent has to be established, and maybe this is it. I don't know. Uh, the fact that it is in terms of advancement in the playoffs throughout the year there with uh, the one I mentioned of Chase Elliott and uh, Kevin Harvick was during the regular season. Yes, it gave bonus points and a win, which helped in the playoffs, but it was not a direct advancement through the rounds. I don't think that should come into play but the, it is a different set of circumstances when it comes to that. Like I said, I, I hate the fact that NASCAR's in this box. The teams know that this shouldn't be happening. I mean, the, the original precedence was set with Michael Waltrip, and I, I feel it destroyed Michael Waltrip racing. So I'd hate mm-hmm. to see that come to another team. Yeah, nobody wants to see that happen with another team. Um, but here's here's the thing. I, I, just like with the next gen car, NASCAR said uh, there is no more fudging with the parts. We're giving you a spec part. You are not to tamper with it. If you tamper with it, you will be penalized. Um, and they kind of followed through on that throughout the season. Uh, I think I don't think they can make any rule changes now. Uh, I think that um, uh, you're right. There's too much precedent for them to have a uh, penalty at this point because it would get appealed and it's a good chance that the appeal would be overturned. How, I mean, the um, 
penalty would be overturned. However, I do think that going into next season, NASCAR can start off the season and say, this will not be allowed, uh, and if there is radio communication or anything that gives us the impression that somebody helped a teammate in order to manipulate the outcome of the race, uh, we will penalize it, and this will be what the penalty is. Um, that is that is not uncommon for NASCAR to establish a rule at the beginning of the season, uh, and regardless of what the precedent was before, from this point forward, it's, this is what it is now. So I think that, uh, that that would be the scenario where NASCAR could make uh, a ruling. However, it's very, very slippery slope for NASCAR uh, to get into the business of monitoring uh, all of these teams. I wish we had the technology uh, that we could, uh, you know, somehow with the technology have all eyes on all cars at all times so that these kind of things could be uh, figured out more easily. I don't know if we have that technology yet. It sounded like NASCAR was working on some technology of that nature. Maybe that's the point where they can make this, okay, from this point forward, these are the rules and that will no longer be accepted uh, kind of thing. But uh, I, I think it's going to be a slippery slope for them unless they have uh, something that objectively tells them that, you know, somebody manipulated the outcome of the race. Um, I think also, and I'm going, to, I'm going to throw this out there, and I'm doing it with some trepidation uh, because I don't think a lot of people will agree with this, um, so I know I would be in the minority. But I think blocking has become somewhat dangerous uh, within the sport, and I do wish that NASCAR would come up with some kind of a blocking rule uh, because we've got drivers all over the track trying to block different cars. And, you know, it, we've seen blocks cause humongous accidents. I remember uh, Tony Stewart complaining about people who were blocking, and then he blocked, he threw a block at Talladega that took out half of the field. So, uh, I, I wish there was some way that we could minimize the blocking that's taking place on the racetrack because sometimes I think that blocking causes more accidents than need to happen. Um, and I don't know how that would be enforced or, or what, but I, I, that is one rule I wish they would do something about. Mike, you get the final word. So it's a really sticky situation to be in. NASCAR's they've almost tied their hands in saying that they're not going to do anything that's going to affect the round of eight. So if they were to determine that something happened that was against the rules, what are they going to do? They can't penalize Chase Briscoe because he, they already said they're not going to take him out of the round of eight. Cole Custer's not in the playoffs, so it's not like they could take him out. They could potentially issue a points penalty to the 41 team, but they're so far back in the field, it doesn't matter. They're not racing for anything this year. So, it was. It's almost would have been better for them to let this sleeping dog lie and not say anything about it because it's highlighted an issue 
that it's kind of a sore subject right now for NASCAR and the fans, and it's kind of a self-induced situation. NASCAR, through their, their lack of enforcement of the rule, has created a pretty firm precedent that undermines one of the rules that they made a big deal about when they first came out with it. So where do they go from here? I really don't know. I don't think anything's really going to come of it. I think they're just going to say, we reviewed it, and it, it, to bring back the football analogies, the ruling on the field stands. They don't have conclusive evidence to overturn the call that was made at the racetrack, so they're just going to let it ride. What they should do in the future, maybe like Sharon said, they're going to put their foot down and say, this is going to be like this for, the, for here on out. But now how do you enforce it? Do you have to have clear communication? Don't pass him Jones. That sounds like a pretty actionable thing because that, those are instructions coming from team management, someone outside of the race car. But where's that line? Ross Chastain or Chase Elliott blocking to benefit their teammates. Well, that everything that I've seen regarding both of those two situations, it sounds like that was an individual decision made by the driver on the racetrack without any input or influence from the race team. They weren't racing at 100% of the capability of their car at the moment, so they were in violation of that 100% rule, but it didn't rise to the level of team-coordinated collusion to manipulate the outcome of the race. So I think if going forward NASCAR is going to want to enforce this more, they're going to have to lay down some firmer definitions beyond just this nebulous 100% thing of certain binary, if you do this, this will happen to you kind of rules if they want to get serious about changing this. I don't know that it's something that they should change, though, because it is a team sport. These teams, and when I say teams, I mean Hendrick Motorsports, Joe Gibbs Racing, et cetera, have multiple cars. Each team is trying to win the championship. If the nine team with Chase Elliott can't win the championship, they would sure like to see William Byron win the championship. If Christopher Bell can't win the championship, well, I guess that's the only Joe Gibbs Racing car that's still alive, so not, not a good analogy. But the, the point is, if one individual car from a team can't win a championship, it kind of would make sense for the team to do everything they could within their power and influence to ensure the best chance for the remaining cars to win the championship. So I don't know that I necessarily want to say that each individual car can't do something bigger picture to benefit their team. I think that that adds a beneficial layer to the sport where a team, a, a single car on a team can do something to benefit the broader team as a whole. I don't know where to go from from this, but I'm interested to see where NASCAR does. I don't think we're going to see anything immediately from this, but I do agree there probably is going to be something done about it during the offseason. Yeah, that's what I would expect it to. And thank you. I, I did want to bring up uh, that NASCAR needs to find a way, and I don't know if it's technology or what, to catch these kind of things as they happen instead of making a ruling two or three days later. Uh, they they could have done something during the race uh, so that everybody kind of knows where they stand and what they need to do. Uh, that needs to happen, I think, as well. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry. I said you had the last word, and I, I just remembered I forgot to mention that. That's <laughs> okay. your show. You know, if, you, if you say that's how it is, that's how it is. <laughs> okay. Uh, Jay, what's our next hot topic? Well, I just wanted to throw in there, too, and I was trying to find it. I think Benny Hamlin is still in for Toyota, uh, Joe Gibbs Racing. But, I think he is still um, in. You're right. Okay, yeah. you're right. I just remember seeing that it was uh, doing out of the eight. I think it was three Chevrolets, 
three Fords and two Toyotas. Um, but one thing that, and I know you guys each had it up in separate spots, so let me find one of them. Uh, Jeff Gluck on Twitter, a uh, very unusual and perhaps unprecedented day in the NASCAR world. Teams are going public with their unhappiness over the state of financial negotiations with the sanctioning body, uh, what's happening and why now. So that was one tweet. And I know Jeff Gordon also had, somebody had one with Jeff Gordon um, saying yeah. the same thing, that, that the model is uh, needs to be amended, uh, the way they're doing business and the portion of the TV rights money that comes in, how it's split up between tracks, team owners, and then NASCAR. Okay, Mike, your thoughts. Yeah, this is referencing the uh, the Race Team Alliance, and there's a, a governing council of team owners or management representatives of those owners. So, for example, Jeff Gordon represents Hendrick Motorsports. I'm trying to find his name, but there's a gentleman who represents uh, Joe Gibbs Racing and so forth. And these representatives help to interface with NASCAR to come up with long-term strategy, negotiate the best deals that benefit the organization, uh, NASCAR, as well as the teams. And the Denny Hamlin has mentioned this a bit in terms of how he wants to see the model of the revenue distribution change with the next TV deal, and this kind of relates to that. There were some really interesting things that were said here, though. For example, Jeff Gordon said Hendrick Motorsports has not turned a profit in several years. Now, we're talking about one of, if not the most uh, benef- or the, the most dominant team that the NASCAR Cup Series has seen in years. Uh, from Joe Gibbs Racing, their representative said he's terrified of what happens after Coach Gibbs is gone. Remember, Coach Gibbs is in his 80s. He's doing well for a man of his age, but time is inevitable. And eventually, Coach Gibbs will no longer be with, with Joe Gibbs Racing. And the fact that that organization is concerned about their future when Coach Gibbs goes away, it, it's kind of eye-opening. They, that, they brought up, their, their, by their reasoning, NASCAR and the tracks hold about 93% of the total value of the sport. And the, ten, and the, the rest of the teams, all the teams combined, hold about 7% of the value there. There's some metrics about how they came up with it. NASCAR said they don't necessarily agree with the math on it, but the, the core principle is pretty relevant. The teams have a very small share of the total value of NASCAR. They only get 25% of the total TV revenue. 65% of it goes to the racetracks, for example. And they're hoping with the next TV deal to slice that pie a little bit differently so the teams receive a larger portion of that revenue because, as we've seen, teams have always been very dependent on sponsorship, but sponsorship has become harder and harder to come by. It used to be 15, 20 years ago, one single sponsor was good for the majority, if not the entirety, of the season for a given team. Think about the most iconic cars from the 80s and 90s, and it's almost always tied to a single sponsor. Jeff Gordon with DuPont, Dale Earnhardt with GM Goodwrench, Terry Labonte with Kellogg's and whatnot, where you had a single sponsor who was identified with the race car and the race team because that sponsor was able to provide support throughout the duration of the season. As costs have gone up for these teams and sponsor revenue has gone down, you've seen that this patchwork of sponsorship where there's very few stable full-time sponsors left. FedEx with, with Denny Hamlin is about one of the few that are left where the vast majority of the, of the races are covered by a single sponsor. Who's the primary sponsor for Christopher Bell? 
or even Chase Elliott. While it changes week after week, there may be a sponsor that happens more frequently. But the point the teams are making is it's more and more difficult to come up with the revenue necessary from these sponsorship deals in order to put a competitive product on the racetrack. And they would like NASCAR to reassess the revenue model so the teams aren't as dependent on the sponsorship in order to put the show on. It sounds like the initial round of negotiations did not go well, and that's why these teams have come forward and gone public with some of the, the concerns they have in this negotiation process to hopefully shed a little bit of light on it and probably put a little bit of pressure on NASCAR to rectify what they believe to be a very serious concern going forward with the sport. Yeah, what they did is they put together a team uh, and formed a subcommittee that includes 2311 Racing Executive Curtis Polk, Joe Gibbs Racing's President Dave Alpern, uh, Roush Fenway, Keselowski Racing President Steve Newmark, and Hendrick Motorsports Vice Chairman Jeff Gordon. Those are the, those are the people uh, that are on this subcommittee to work directly with NASCAR on this point. And uh, actually, after meeting with NASCAR, and as you mentioned, that first round did not go well, uh, these guys decided to meet with a handful of veteran media members uh, Thursday morning out at Charlotte, North Carolina Hotel, and, and outlined for them exactly what their challenges are. And, and Mike did a good job of kind of explaining uh, where they're coming from. I, too, was astounded when I heard that Hendrick Motorsports, one of the biggest teams in NASCAR, had not turned a profit uh, for quite a long time. So that gives you an idea uh, you know, what What that says to me is that these uh, other teams that are not as well-funded are probably struggling even more uh, if, if teams like uh, Hendrick Motorsports are not turning a profit. These guys get into this business because they want to make a profit. And uh, if they're not making a profit and they're losing money year after year after year, it's just a matter of time before they just drop out. Uh, and and that's not what NASCAR wants if they want to uh, have a sustainable sport uh, that takes us through the ages. And the other part, and Mike, you brought this up in other discussions, that 18, what is it, 18 to 49 demographic, uh, NASCAR's losing in that regard, uh, which is why they're doing a lot of different things to kind of uh, attract that crowd. But um, uh, the bottom line here is that these teams uh, need to make money, and uh, they can't. They're going to have to change that uh, percentage uh, of the TV rights in order to make that happen. Um, it says the current 10-year 8.2 billion broadcast rights revenue is split 65% to the tracks. 25% to the race teams, and 10% to the sectioning body. Um, uh, so uh, what they're saying is that they want uh, that 25% to the race teams to be increased, uh, and it's almost a necessity uh, according to the way they've laid it out here in order for that to happen. Uh, to help keep these teams sustainable over a long period of time. Uh, the last thing NASCAR wants to have happen is for these teams to reach that point that they can't afford to lose money anymore 
and they end up dropping out of the sport. Uh, what they really want is for teams to come into the sport. But I do think that there are teams that are creating a different type of model uh, that is working very, very well. And Justin Marks is a good example. Uh, that is one of the newer teams that have come into the sport. And he said this next-gen car is costing them a lot of money right now, too. But um, uh, he did say he what he is doing is reaching out into different racing venues uh, and um, – creating a, a depth to his organization that way. Uh, Hendrick Motorsports does that too, but I'm, I'm just saying it's, it's, it's something that NASCAR does need to take a look at. There was an interview with Steve Phelps uh, by the, the Dale Earnhardt Jr. and Jeff Burton and somebody else that's not coming to my mind right now, but uh, these guys were asking Steve Phelps about that, and, and he seemed to be have a little bit of um, – he was in tune with what the concerns are and said that they certainly are willing to work uh, with that subcommittee. So I hope they come up with a good solution to this and uh, we can keep these teams uh, kind of on the positive side, uh, the black side versus the red side of doing business. Jay? Well, to start with, uh, I'll say this. Uh, I think we've all heard the, the saying, if you want to make a million dollars in racing, start with $2 million, uh, no matter where or how you're involved. Not being on the inside and, and re- directly related to any one of the three, we'll call it the owners, the tracks, and the NASCAR, I think you could be, depending on which side you're on, make your argument. Race teams say they need more money so they're not dependent on sponsorship. They get to go out and race 36 times a year, and they do get sponsorship money. Tracks, if they got one or two races, depending on, have to provide the facility, which is no cheap cost, upkeep it, provide staff for race weekends. They're saying they don't have enough, depending on the track, what other uses it can be for for a venue throughout the year. Uh, and same with NASCAR. They lost their main title sponsor um, that we haven't had for several years. Now, they've tried the different um, marketing plan of several official sponsors of and gone that route. So I think every one of these sides has an argument. I do think they, they need to sit down and come to a collective agreement and see how they can keep everybody afloat because that's what keeps the the, the sport um, afloat. Uh, so like I said, I think you could make an argument for every side. And more so, I guess I would lean towards having worked with Jackson Motor Speedway, the track side of it, but I understand the driver side of it as well. I have no idea on the overall sanctioning body of uh, like NASCAR's in uh, of that, but they're, they're definitely – ways and i know with nascar you know part of it is and i think about this they try to help the teams help themselves by cutting back costs taking away the wind tunnel testing time testing at other tracks you know nascar has done things to help the team save money well then they go and try and spend it in other places you i mean there comes a point where it's you know in other sports we see it of a salary cap you just can't spend more than this amount of money and I don't know how they would do that in a sport like NASCAR, but that would be the only way to truly stop that would be to say you just can't spend more than this amount. 
Okay, Mike, your follow-up? Well, Sharon, you brought up the point of other teams wanting to get into the sport, NASCAR wanting to attract more teams in the sport, and that's absolutely an important thing. But then you think of it from a standpoint of somebody wanting to start a team. Well, what's the goal? Do they want to be as big as Hendrick Motorsports or Joe Gibbs Racing? Now you have these teams that you would aspire to become like if you were to start a NASCAR Cup Series team saying that they're not turning a profit or that they're worried about going out of business when their team leadership steps away. That's a big concern, and I would say that it would give any prospective NASCAR Cup Series team owner a a bit of a pause before investing the time, effort, and money that it would take to potentially start up a NASCAR Cup Series team. So this is a really serious concern. With regard to the revenue sharing, Jay broke it down great, uh, 65% to the racetracks and 10% to the sanctioning body, but that's not exactly accurate. Uh, NASCAR through International Speedway Corporation, which is a wholly owned company that NASCAR owns, they own about half of the racetracks. So half of those racetracks and the sanctioning body, there are two pockets in the same pair of pants in terms of where the money's going. So NASCAR as the sanctioning body does get more than just their 10% there, just as a matter of clarification. As far as what they can do, Jay talked about cutting costs, but at the same time, NASCAR has done things to try and, and cut costs, and most recently being the Gen 7 car. And in terms of cost cutting, it almost sounds like that's backfired based on the comments Justin Marks has made as well as others where the idea was that this Gen 7 car would cost less money because of spec parts that the teams wouldn't be doing R&D on and the amount of manufacturing and whatnot that the teams are spending money on would go to the third-party manufacturers. Well, that's not necessarily the case. Anyone who's done any kind of a DIY project, they know that it's usually cheaper to do it yourself if it's within your means to do so versus paying somebody else to do it. And it seems like the teams are finding out that it's actually more expensive to pay somebody else to make the parts for your race car. And on top of that, because NASCAR has mandated that they have to buy the parts from those vendors in that condition, there's really no way to reduce that cost. The parts cost what they cost as determined by the vendor who's selling them. So there's really not a lot of room to cut costs there. And the teams, part of that article they were talking about, well, the next place that they have a legitimate place to cut costs would be to lay people off. And we never want to see anybody lose their jobs, especially in this industry. Sharon, you brought it up that this is a business. We as race fans, a lot of times, we think about racing more in terms of it's being a competition or, if nothing else, an entertainment source. But at its core, NASCAR is a business. They make a product. The product is on-track racing. If they don't have customers who watch that on-track racing product and bring revenue into the business, well, then they don't have the money to pay the people to put on the show. And part of those people are some extremely well-educated, extremely hardworking people who live predominantly in the Charlotte, North Carolina region, but scattered across the country who depend on this industry and the success of it to have their livelihood, provide for their families, and, and take care of themselves. So, I don't think anybody wants to see cost-cutting come down to layoffs, but it sounds like that is one of the things that may be on the table if something isn't remedied here in terms of a better, more agreeable revenue-sharing model that benefits everybody. I don't know how to slice the pie. Obviously, I'm only privy to what I read in, in articles like this, so I don't know what can be moved around there. Jay brings up a good point of, this is like a three- or four-person tug-of-war game where you've got a, a five-ended rope and everyone's pulling in one direction, and everyone feels like they've got the strongest argument of why they deserve the biggest piece of the pie. This is going to take a lot of negotiation, and I don't know what the solution is. 
But it sounds like something's going to have to change, whether it be the fundamental sponsorship model, some, something comes out of nowhere and the sponsorship model changes and suddenly more money's coming into the sport, or the allocation of the money that's there is going to need to get changed up in order to keep these teams viable to provide the best racing product to attract the fans to consume the product and provide the revenue to keep the sport going. Yeah, it, it's a it's a difficult situation for everybody, um, and you're right. It's going to take all parties sitting at the table and negotiating uh, over uh, a new plan here, a new model, if you will. Uh, and so we'll see what happens from that. You mentioned the cost savings. I know uh, part of the conversation with Justin Marks. He indicated that yeah, he knows he's spending money now, but it's like a it's like a startup business. Uh, in the first five years, you typically don't make money. Uh, it's not until later on when you've built up the inventory, you've built the chassis, you know because you've got your road course car, you know you've got your your uh, short track car, your intermediate car, and, and whatever, um, that the, that cost savings is going to appear. It's not appearing now uh, because of the situation that we have with um, uh supply chain issues, and the parts that we're talking about. Uh, we talked about the lug nuts, how they have to go through all of those lug nuts uh, and pull out the bad ones because mixed in with the good ones are the bad ones. Uh, well, that takes time and, and effort. And uh, uh, if you're doing that, you're not doing something else that the team needs. So there's all kinds of things. I do think that this is only part of the solution, and I think that's how they have to approach that. Um, it, it's not going to be the uh, be-all, end-all for race teams. It's not going to be the be-all, end-all for NASCAR or for the tracks. Uh, there has to be other factors and I think that's what teams like Trackhouse Racing are doing. They're looking at other ways that they can create income for their organization uh, so that they can sustain uh, the business, if you will. So um, they've changed the sponsorship model by having more sponsors instead of one sponsor, uh, partnerships instead of a title sponsor. Um, so we've already seen the business model change over the years. Uh, and we're going to see, I think, a dramatic change in the business model uh, that's coming up here as it relates to the teams and the sustainability of these teams uh, for the long haul. And um, it's going to take some out-of-the-box thinking, I, I believe. So we'll see. Uh, what comes out of the conversation and the negotiations and and uh, how these teams react to their situations. Uh, but I don't think they need to put all of their eggs into this basket. I think they need to have more plans beyond this for how they're going to generate that income. Jay? Yeah, like I said, without knowing, each side is going to bring what they're saying. I think they do need to look and understand um, on the other side of the other two, as as uh, mentioned, the tracks and NASCAR. Now, I do understand um, what Mike is saying, that the tracks, NASCAR as a sanctioning body gets 10%. They do own a majority of the track. But 
the tracks themselves are the ones then that, that pay out too for the weekly uh, payout during races. So I, I'm with Mike. I mean, I don't know how to fix it. I understand each side has their concern. We've seen some of the things, and hopefully they can come up with some other cost-cutting moves. Uh, I know we've talked about maybe, um, and, and this might even come into play, a midweek race or a Friday-Saturday show at tracks, either the same track or closer tracks. And I think of Pocono, two days at the same track. Then you got an off weekend. That's a weekend then off the road. So there are a lot of different ways it could be looked at. And as long as NASCAR, the teams, the industry are working together, uh, I know we got that in another topic, but working together and understanding each side um, how to come to the best solution. Exactly, because everybody wants the solution that's going to work for them. Uh, and that's going to involve compromise, too. Okay, so, Mike, uh, do you want to give us our next top topic? Sure. We've talked about this in a few different segments where drivers have been very vocal about issues and criticisms they see within NASCAR. We've, we've speculated that maybe it has to do with the communications breakdown between the sanctioning body, the teams, and the individual drivers. And Steve Phelps kind of addressed that and has, quote, vowed to do better communicating between the sanctioning body and the teams to give them better and more current information about what NASCAR might be working on to hopefully prevent some potentially ill-advised hot takes from taking place. Okay, Jay, your thoughts? Not sure why this hadn't happened already. Um, I feel like especially in this era, there is a much more open-door policy than I know I heard it referenced on SiriusXM going back to the Big Bill France days of this is my company, my business, you're going to do it my way, you don't like it, there's the door, or there's the road, actually. Um, So I think we've come a, a long way. Obviously, there's always room for improvement. I don't know that they've ever had a schedule. But there again, it's one of those, if that's the easy answer of fix of, hey, on Tuesday morning, we have our competition meet or our NASCAR hot wash meeting. Y'all are more than welcome to come. Well, they got other meetings and sponsor commitments that they got to go do in order to keep their company afloat. So, uh, again, the open communication is great understanding each other's side of it you can't just say okay we're having a meeting on wednesday well we can't make it you know and you got let's say 15 different teams uh i don't know if that's accurate i kind of made it up off the top of my head but 15 teams in nascar had just taken the cup series to start with now you gotta get 15 representatives from those teams along with nascar on a particular day i mean shoot we have a tough time getting four people together here on a monday and thursday night (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, I think part of what came out of this uh, conversation, it was Marty Snyder along with Dale Earnhardt Jr. and Jeff Burton uh, that interviewed Steve Phelps. And what came out of that conversation is that there is an advisory council uh, that is led by Jeff Burton, who is considered their uh, executive director, I guess, um, and seven cup drivers. Uh, and they talk about all kinds of different things uh, throughout the year. So that's been an ongoing thing that has been happening. Uh, What came out of this 
is that that NASCAR met with all of the drivers this week, and they had like a 20 slides uh, that they presented to them before practice and qualifying. Um, and uh, they talked about what they're developing uh, as a result of some of the concerns of the drivers with that modified rear clip and bumper structure and the center clip. Um, and I know they did some, they showed us some of that, I believe, on uh, the, I don't know if it was the pre-race coverage, uh, some of that was covered uh, with some of the uh, pre-race information uh, before the Cup Series race. They talked about this a little bit. Um, so what they're doing now is they're going to meet on a weekly basis with all of the drivers to keep them up to date with what they're doing uh, and also to give them an opportunity to express uh, their concerns and their thoughts about uh, the progress that NASCAR is making with regard to especially this next-gen car. So this is going to be the opportunity now, I guess, this weekly meeting, uh, which Steve Phelps says we probably should have done this long before now, but we're doing it now, and they're going to continue to do that every week in order to keep everybody up to date with what's going on. I think possibly what was happening is that this advisory council felt that they were on the right track and and they knew what was going on, but that communication back out to the other drivers was not happening, and therefore uh, they felt like NASCAR was just ignoring them. That wasn't necessarily the case, uh, but that's how the drivers felt. So I, I do think that this is a good idea to meet on a weekly basis. Uh, we'll see how long they sustain that. But um, uh, I, I applaud NASCAR uh, for making that decision, and Steve Feltz, uh I think, makes it very clear uh, that they understand that this is what they need to do going forward in order to keep everybody informed. Um, Mike, your thoughts? Well, Jay brings up these concerns that they might have not have an opportunity to get all the drivers together for this meeting. Well, they've had drivers together every week forever. It's called the driver's mm-hmm. meeting before the race. Absolutely. And, yes, obviously the topic of discussion is usually how the race is going to be conducted, but there's nothing to say that they can't take a couple minutes to talk about any pertinent hot topics, a new design change, a potential rule change, things like that, to keep the drivers better informed. They've got a captive audience. The drivers are required to go to that driver's meeting, so there's no excuse to say, oh, I have a sponsor commitment. I couldn't make it. Yes, drivers missed the driver's meeting, and they're penalized for it. So they have an, a built-in opportunity every single race weekend to address all the drivers directly face-to-face, and it would be a great opportunity to to – not just talk about how the race is going to be conducted, but the direction of the sport in a broader sense of the, the concerns that drivers have in this instance, safety, and what NASCAR is doing to address those concerns. So I don't think getting the drivers in one spot to have this kind of a meeting is a big concern. I applaud NASCAR for this. We talked about it in previous shows where there's been concerns about drivers saying some Ill, potentially ill-advised or misinformed things, and those stories grow legs and perception becomes reality there. So I think NASCAR is smart to get ahead of this. Now, the downside of it is the part of the reason they keep some of this stuff under the hat is it gives them some flexibility. If they're doing something that maybe not, is not working out the way they hoped, 
it's it's not as big of a deal because there's not as many people who are expecting it. Say, for example, the testing of the new rear clip doesn't go well and they decide to not do it. Well, if it's out there, hey, we're going to do this thing, and then they suddenly walk it back, the door is open to more questions, concerns, and criticisms as to why the situation happened the way that it did. So I think it's a good step. I hope it, it provides benefit to the sport in terms of keeping the drivers better informed and then, therefore, us as fans better informed. So I'm interested to see where it goes from here. Okay, Jay. As, as a whole, I do think it is a good idea in the transparency and communication between NASCAR, what they're doing, and the teams is a great thing. But to play devil's advocate here, as a fan, you go to the track, what do you want? To see the driver, to meet the driver. Right. Now you're adding something. I use sponsor obligations in order to have money for the team for them to survive and race. they got to do sponsor obligations. Now you got fans. They want to see you. They're the ones p- paying for the tickets to get in. You know, plus you want to have a meeting with your crew chief and talk about your car, how it's going, race strategy, whatever. Now you got to have a longer driver's meeting uh, that was already mandatory for, for that portion of it. Now you're talking about a longer one. I mean, you can only put so much demands on a person's time. That's my concern. Now, whether if it, I was thinking it would be during the week um, outside of the race itself, but that still you're taking up more time. You can make an argument of then, okay, we can't do the sponsor meeting. Well, now we don't have a sponsor. Now we don't have fans in the stands because we're not meeting with the fans. And that's been a big cry for a long time of more interaction. And that goes back to the souvenir haulers and driver appearances. So there's a lot of things that come into play here. It's not just about this one situation or one meeting for NASCAR and the drivers. But as a whole, I do like the concept, and I hope it goes well. Uh, my only other outside fear of that is, as you have uh, – 15 people have an opinion on how things be done. I know with the the next-gen car, I, I can't think of a couple of the things that got said. You, know, you had Ross Chastain and one other saying, hey, wait, these drivers that are screaming about things don't speak for all of us. You know, I mean, that's mm-hmm. the more people you involve in something, the longer it takes to get one thing done. I'll just say that. That is very true, and I think it comes down to be careful what you ask for because you just might get it. Uh, So you're right, uh, Jay. These guys have a lot of responsibilities when it comes to race uh, day weekend, and uh, I don't know if they're planning to do these uh, once-a-week meetings at the racetrack or if it's going to be done during the week, Uh, but I think it's a good idea. I think during the week might be better, but, again, you're taking time away from other things, no matter when they have it. NASCAR is always in a no-win situation. No matter what they do, there's something about what they're doing that somebody's not going to like, and they're going to call attention to it. Um, uh, Again, I kind of wish some of these drivers that were complaining, I wish they would have gone to the advisory council and talked to them uh, and maybe they did, and they just felt like they weren't getting any communication uh, from the advisory council. I don't know, but uh, it seems like this is a knee-jerk reaction. Uh, I think it's good that they're going to meet on a weekly basis, but I think that there are going to be um, some challenges that come along with that uh, is probably the best way that I can say that. And I'm wondering how long 
the drivers are going to buy into this every week meeting with NASCAR. Uh, you're right. They have the drivers meeting. It would be nice if there was a way to incorporate it into the drivers meeting. I don't know if you've ever been to a drivers meeting, Mike. Um, most of the time those guys are listening, but so much of it is repetition uh, from week to week to week that sometimes they might not be as attentive as you might want them to be with the information that's coming out. Or a driver may say, well, as long as my crew chief's listening, uh, that's that's what's most important. Uh, but, yeah, these guys uh, have to make sure that they – if, if they're going to make the complaint that NASCAR is not communicating and NASCAR puts this in place where they're going to communicate to you every single week uh, with what's happening with this next-gen car, you better be there. You better be listening. And, uh, uh, if, if, again, I, I, I always think it's better to be part of the solution versus just placing blame uh, and finding fault. Uh with every complaint, come up with a solution or an idea for a solution. Um, so we'll see how it all plays out. Uh, I, I think it's a great thing, but I do have some reservations on how long they'll be able to sustain this. Mike? Well, now, Sharon, before you jump game. back to Mike. Oh, it's that time of the night. I'm sorry, Mike. It is. Um we're at that time of the night that I make an announcement to our first-time listeners. Uh, just to let you know that we are going to go off the air at exactly 10.30 uh, p.m. Eastern Time. However, we are going to continue our conversation, and we'll record that part of the conversation uh, so that it will be available as a part of our podcast as bonus overtime material. Uh, so what you can do is I will go out on Facebook and Twitter as soon as we're done here and let you know that the podcast is available. At that point, you can go to the player that we have over at FampaRacing.com and fast forward to the two-hour mark so you can hear the rest of the conversation. So, uh, again, I just don't want anybody to be caught off guard and not know how they can hear the rest of the conversation, especially when you hear us going off air uh, kind of mid-sentence uh, and, and in the middle of this uh, topic of discussion. So with that, Mike, I we're curious to hear what you have to say. So I'm going to do Jay's favorite thing here. I'm going to pretend to agree with him to set up a disagreement with him. Uh, he brings up some really good points. There's only so many hours in the day, and there are a lot of demands on driver's time between sponsor commitments, fan appearances, autograph signings, you name it. Uh, a lot of fans might not realize that the drivers aren't just driving on Sunday afternoons, and even when they're not driving, they're doing a whole lot of other things throughout the entire week. If you miss Race for the Championship, 10 p.m. Eastern time on USA Network, you see a lot of that during the show where Kyle Busch walks into a room and he's got hundreds of die-cast cars and hats to sign, and that takes a lot of time, and it needs to get done because it's important in order to keep the team functioning and kind of back to the topic that we had before. It's same thing with the uh, with the using the driver's meeting and then taking those demands away from – or taking time away from there. It's a lot to unpack. But the big question comes back to what is the problem that they're trying to address? Well, the problem here that they're trying to address is concerns that were being aired in public that may have not been the most accurate. 
and they were serious concerns that had to do with driver safety. And the, the solution for that right now appears to be improving the communications process. It may involve carving away a little bit more time in order to make that happen, but in terms of addressing the bigger problem at hand, namely ensuring clear communication of what is being done to address these serious concerns, especially when you have drivers blatantly saying that they don't believe NASCAR is doing anything, well, that, that's the bigger problem here. Is it the perfect solution? No. Does a perfect solution exist? Probably not. But I think this is a good step forward to addressing the big problem that we have here that appears to be a breakdown in communication that has led to some ill-advised and potentially not the most flattering things being said about the sport and reflecting poorly on the sport in the media coming from some of their biggest stars. We'll have to see how this gets structured and how it, it, it is actually implemented going forward, but I do think it's a good first step, and I'm glad that it's on their radar and it's something that they're looking to address. Okay. Uh, Jay, do you have another hot topic you'd like for us to discuss? Yeah, we still got a several. We certainly could. Uh, I think I'm going to go with the one of, uh, I don't know if Mike was ribbing me or not. Uh, it wasn't even a full rib because I kind of had that feeling, but let's see if I can find it where it talks about OEMs coming into NASCAR, specifically Dodge here. Uh, Adam Stern's tweet says that Dodge's talks with NASCAR about reentering the series as the fourth OEM have stalled per sources. Um, and I say, I kind of had that feeling. Uh, I've fallen victim to this uh, too much hope in it before. So my hope level wasn't extremely high. I hope that we do still see a manufacturer come in, but I haven't heard a whole lot of rumblings lately from any others either. Okay. Mike. I brought this up because Jay's a Dodge guy. I mean, it, 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 it's in the name, Mopar MJ. So, of course, I had to bring it up and, and, and tag Jay in it. But the, the point is valid. Uh, per Adam Stern, it sounds like Dodge, it's, they, they, I don't know how close they were to coming back to NASCAR, but it sounds like that's on hold, if not completely canceled right now. It's unfortunate, but it is what it is. It felt like we were so close. This time last year, it felt like we were so close to having another manufacturer coming into the sport, if not Dodge, somebody else. There was a lot of talk from some pretty pretty high-up people in NASCAR, Steve O'Donnell and others. They never said any names, but they, they really implied that we were close to getting another manufacturer. And with the Gen 7 car, it seemed like a perfect opportunity for new OEMs to get into the sport and showcase their brands and – Unfortunately, it looks like that's not going to come to pass. I understand because especially with the way the economy looks like it's trending kind of in a potential downward trend, it's probably not the best financial move for a new car manufacturer to get into something like NASCAR, especially when a lot of their R&D and promotional material is really geared towards developing and promoting electric cars. That also ties into another facet of the article that Adam Stern linked where NASCAR had talked about doing an electric exhibition series in addition to their already currently running three national touring series. Those were, there was never any real concrete plans for how that was going to get done, but it sounds like that's also on hold. I don't know what the, the big picture driver on it is. My guess is probably bigger economic concerns. Everyone's kind of holding their breath right now to see what direction the economy goes over the next year or two. Disappointing to see that Dodge is out they were a, a huge part of growing the sport throughout the years, and 
the, the last time they were in the sport, they won a championship with Brad Keselowski and Team Penske. So it's unfortunate to see Dodges not looking like they're going to be coming back to the sport anytime soon. Maybe we'll get another manufacturer soon, but unfortunately it looks like that's not going to happen. Okay. Um, yeah, I think that the, there's obvious reasons why Dodge or any other manufacturer would not be coming into the sport at this particular point. Now, I think it's also important to note uh, that Dodge said uh, that their focus is on the NHRA right now uh, as opposed to um, uh, NASCAR, and uh, they're not expanding their efforts into any other forms of racing. So that's kind of what they have to do. They have to pick one and focus on that one. Uh, and and in this economic situation, that's that's kind of the place that everybody is. Um, look at what's happening with Toyota this year. Toyota uh, is losing a lot of their drivers. They lost one of their main uh, drivers with uh, Kyle Busch going into um, RCR next year and changing over to Chevrolet and taking Kyle Busch Motorsports with them to the Chevrolet manufacturing uh, OEM. So <clears throat> these guys, I know it's cyclical um, that these teams, uh, you know, one year it's Ford, another year Chevy seems to have the, the hand on, on uh, what's, uh, what's, what to do in order to win, and other teams seem to be behind. Um, but this is not a good time for an OEM, another OEM to be coming into NASCAR. I think that they, they need to wait, um, and I think it's going to be a while before we hear of another OEM coming into NASCAR. So I think everything's understandable here as to why negotiations have stalled, why, uh, you know, Dodge is focusing on NHRA and not looking at any other venues at this point. It, it just all makes sense with the current environment. So, Jay, what are your thoughts? My thoughts versus my hopes. Uh, my hope would have been that Dodge came back. Uh, the thoughts, there there are a lot to it. Um, and, I, and I don't know because this is one where Mike said that the exact details were never specified so that it wouldn't come back and bite them in the butt. Um, there were apparently talks with Dodge. I know there was a lot of speculation of with, you mentioned Tony Stewart on the drag racing, Tony Stewart uh, racing with the drag racing side of being Dodge, and that maybe that would lead to them coming in with SHR. Uh, I know that one, I, that one I actually did have a little bit more hope and excitement to, but what I want to look at here is at the bottom of this article that uh, from the Sports Business Journal that Adam Stern uh, brings to with the tweet examining the potential landing spot uh at the same time that dodge explored entering nascar over the last year it held exploratory talks with at least one team rfk racing about the prospective partnership should it decide to re-enter the sport now rfk is currently aligned with ford as well uh oh i'm sorry i wanted to go down to the look electrical here we go looking at electric options uh, like many car companies these days, Dodge is planning an electrified future, starting to design a hybrid and all-electric vehicles. NASCAR's plans in the electric and sustainability space were likely of interest to the car company. On top of considering turning the Cup Series cars into hybrid vehicles as soon as 2024, 
NASCAR had been planning an all-electric exhibition series. Uh, documents leaked this summer by kickingthetires.net website indicated the exhibition series was set to debut next year. However, sources say that the all-electric exhibition series will not start next season as originally planned. It was unclear whether the stalled talks with Dodge played a role in NASCAR's decision to not start the exhibition season next year as the documents previously suggested. And if NASCAR ever does introduce an all-electric series, it could one day fill the role of what is currently NASCAR's secondary Xfinity series. And I do think that this is what comes into play. Just as we saw when the next gen car was going to come, originally projected in 2021, got pushed back to 2022, we saw some interest from teams, but teams that opted to wait until that happened and then make the move. I think this could play into they're saying, hey, we're going to wait a couple of years and see where NASCAR goes with the possibility of electric cars. So that might be the case with more manufacturers as well. I know Honda was a big one that was kind of talked about. I heard a little bit about BMW. So it'll be interesting to see, A, where NASCAR goes with the electric, and I'm not necessarily in favor of that, even if it means bringing Dodge back. But also you just have to accept reality. I mean, things are changing, and that is the direction the world is changing. So you have to adapt with it. Um, We'll have to wait and see, because I think that could be a key factor, especially when it comes to manufacturing and what they're looking to do with their company and target, and then thus where to market it. Okay. Um, It's a real tough position to be in. All of us grew up watching V8-powered, gasoline-burning V8-powered race cars racing around a racetrack. And I think all of us just love the thrill of hearing 40-ish cars come roaring by with, I don't know, 50,000 collective horsepower together. I'm not not sure on the number. Don't don't make me do math. I got shoes on. But the the (laughs) point is, like Jay said, the sport and cars in general is going to fundamentally change. Most car manufacturers are developing, rapidly developing, an entire lineup of electric-powered cars. Several manufacturers have said they intend for their entire lineup to be electric by maybe the end of the decade. The state of California has proposed legislation, I think they may have even passed it, to ban the future sale of gasoline-powered cars in the near future. So like it or not, unfortunately, it sounds like gasoline-powered V8s, or they, they might have a limited future in front of them. What that's going to mean for NASCAR, I don't know. But as the, as the world of cars fundamentally changes, the world of motorsports is going to fundamentally change as well. Will it be for the better? I don't know. For me as a race fan, I'm going to miss the sounds, that's for sure. But as far as what that's going to mean for the sport going forward in the future, I'm not sure. The technology I don't think is there to put on a NASCAR-style race with electric cars. It's just that they don't have the range. They don't have the rapid recharge or refill capability you could take a gasoline powered car you could refill the fuel tank in less than 10 seconds and send them back out on the racetrack you look at electric powered racing series formula e for example they don't service the car they swap the car the driver gets out of the race car he was just in and goes and gets in a different car to race it because there's no practical way to get that same car recharged and able to race again It's a way of racing, but it's going to be fundamentally different than what we've known over the previous 75 years of NASCAR racing. Whether the sport can survive it into the future, 
I don't think it's going to survive in the current form that we know it. I don't mean that to say that NASCAR is going to go away, but I think if we come back and look at the sport in 10 or 15 years from now, it's going to be almost unrecognizable to what we see and what we enjoy right now. Hopefully that they're, they're able to come up with a technology and a way of making the sport work that incorporates these new technologies because once the OEMs are done with gasoline-powered cars, Chevrolet, for example, when they don't have any gasoline-powered cars anymore, they're not going to make gasoline-powered cars to advertise a NASCAR because what's the point? You're not going to go to a NASCAR Cup Series race, watch a V8 gasoline-burning engine car race, and then maybe go buy an electric car. It's, it's, it's not compatible. So there's going to need to be some sort of change within the industry to keep it aligned with the current trend in racing and our current trend in car manufacturing. What that is, I don't know but it's going to be tremendously expensive to make that happen. And like you said, there's very limited budgets in order to make that happen. NASCAR Cup Series racing is incredibly expensive. Honda, uh, they said a year or two ago when there was talk about them coming into NASCAR that if they were to come into NASCAR, it would mean they would need to leave every other form of motorsports that they currently participate in in order to have the budget available to enter NASCAR. And that's just not really realistic for a manufacturer to do something like that. So, unless NASCAR has a way to fundamentally get the cost down or some other thing that makes this sport more attractive to another manufacturer, I don't know that we're ever going to see another manufacturer come into the sport without a major change in trajectory. There's going to be a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth about this from all corners of it. There's people complaining already that NASCAR is too far behind the times and that they are basically a relic of the past. I don't necessarily agree with that, but those people have a point, and that those people are just going to get louder and louder. On the other hand, as soon as you have an electric now, ah, oh, that's not real racing. Ah, blah, 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 blah. Old men are going to be shaking their fists at clouds. That's just how it goes. So as with anything, you're not going to make everybody happy, but if the sport is to continue, there will be some fundamental changes to it. Not everyone's going to like it, but if we want to keep the sport going the way it is, it's just going to be what it's going to be. Yeah, I don't think there's going to be much of a choice. I hit there. I think that uh, uh, this is a, a change that's happening uh, globally, and that NASCAR is part of uh, part of that global world, and they will have to adapt to uh, these changes that are taking place. Uh, it's kind of funny how all of these topics kind of intertwine with each other because. Uh, we're talking about the cost of doing business, and it's already kind of a squeezing a lot of these teams. Uh, we're going through a next-gen car right now. Well, the next-gen uh, car that's coming after that is going to be the electric, and that's going to be a whole other ball game, and it is going to be a huge expense. So uh, that's why coming up with this new model, uh, this new way of doing business, is a must for the teams, uh, for the tracks, for everybody, because there is a boatload of costs that are coming their way uh, as it relates to the electric vehicle. Um, but and and that's why I say I think it, it Dodge is smart to kind of stay out of it right now. And and somebody mentioned it here. Uh, they can focus on one team, one racing venue. Uh, not venue, but uh, series, and and not get caught up with uh, kind of spreading themselves too thin uh, in this kind of an economic environment. So 
uh, I would just tell race fans, be prepared for big changes coming because they are coming. And you can moan and groan and, and everything else about the changes, but it's not going to change the fact that those changes are coming. Um, and so the, the main thing is how does NASCAR adapt to those changes? How do the fans adapt to those changes? Uh, I'm like you, Mike. I'm going to miss the sound of the cars. I'm going to miss the smell of the tires and of the gasoline at the track. It's, but it's all going to be different, and uh, and we're all going to have to adapt. So um, that's about all I have to add. Jay? Yeah, I'm going to have to use uh, some very specific words Mike used. I don't know. Uh, and right now I, I got a lot in my head anyway, thinking about how these changes are, you know, what, what they could do to make it happen, um, gives me a headache. Uh, but it is, I mean, you know, like you mentioned, I mean, the world is changing for the sport to survive. It's got to adapt and change. Uh, I was just thinking about it. I mean, there's certain ones like base haven't really changed or evolved a whole lot and still survive. For racing, it's a little bit different. Um, you know, Mike mentioned of you're not going to have the V8 gasoline-powered cars if they're not available on the market um, from manufacturers. I don't know if that'd be true, but the cost of developing them just as race cars then um, might be an option. But whether that's a economically sustainable, don't know. So. We'll have to wait and see. Um, we'll see how quickly NASCAR progresses with that. That would be the, another unanswered question. As we read there, the electric exhibition series has already been at least pushed back, supposedly. So we'll have to wait and see. Um, and I tried really hard not to think about it because, like I said, it makes my head hurt because I'd be like you guys. I'd really miss it. Uh, not said quit watching altogether. It would depend on what what comes to the table and how how it goes. Okay, um, I guess that uh, I'm going to bring up this last topic uh, for us to discuss, and it has to do with the uh, some questioning the pace of change as NASCAR continues to transform. NASCAR is transforming. Uh, with the race at the Coliseum, with the next-gen car, with all of the things that we've been talking about, changing their model for for uh, TV revenue. Um, uh, there is a lot of change that's been happening. And I, I've been in organizations before where change has happened rapidly, and it is not easy uh, to adapt to so many moving pieces. It's almost like changing a tire while you're moving forward um and and you know being able to adapt to all of the changes um what are your guys thoughts about the pace of the change that's happening in nascar uh mike well on one hand you have to have change the sport has been fundamentally the same for forever just about uh, yes, they grew tremendously in the 90s and the 2000s, but realistically, the, the fundamental nature of the sport didn't change that much. It was still teams bringing cars to the racetrack to go racing and make a few, very few people rich doing it. And we talked about it with the revenue sharing and the, the sponsorship model and whatnot. 
is a lot of things have changed that have been beyond the team's control. They can't control if some corporate boardroom decides that they no longer want to support NASCAR anymore. The team can lobby and they can advertise and they can beg and plead as much as they want, but that's a change that was completely out of their control, but it's going to completely change how they do business. We've seen teams completely close up shop because of, of lack of sponsorship. The bigger concern here, and we talked about this on a previous topic, is NASCAR is being left behind in terms of their fan base. Out of all the professional sports in the United States market, NASCAR has by far the oldest fan base. I think the average age of NASCAR fans is something like 55 or 56 years old versus somewhere in the mid-30s for football and like 35 for baseball. Don't quote me on those numbers. I could be wrong. I probably am. But the point is, NASCAR has a very old fan base in terms of calendar age, and where that really matters is in the advertising demographic. With how dependent NASCAR is on sponsorship and advertising revenue, they have to attract a demographic that that companies want to advertise to. Traditionally, that is the 18 to 49-year-old demographic. And while NASCAR tends to be the most highly rated motorsport on any given weekend, kind of buried in the fine print there is they usually lose the 18 to 49 demographic, especially the Formula One. That's a big deal. So, yes, they have the most number of people watching the sport, but they don't have the most number of the key demographics that these companies want to advertise to, which makes NASCAR less attractive product for these companies to sponsor, support, and advertise in. NASCAR has to change in order to adapt to that. What those changes are, some have been good, some have been bad. Some have been maybe a little bit rushed. The Gen 7 car, for example, is a good, is a good example of a change that NASCAR needed to make. They needed to do something to address the haves and have-nots situation that they had where you had a couple mega teams who could basically just buy their way into winning races. They brought the Gen 7 car in to hopefully address that, and it's a good step forward, but there were issues where the car may not have been fully ready for prime time in terms of safety, in terms of mechanical reliability, et cetera. So it's an example where a necessary change was made but may have been made too quickly or not without proper testing and vetting, and it's led to some problems. So NASCAR is in a tough position. They are – they are in a position where they need to rapidly change in order to not be left behind by the market. But at the same time, the nature of the business and the sport, you've got to be careful making those changes because there's a lot at stake. You could risk alienating the fans that you currently have. A lot of fans didn't like the playoff system. It's tough to say whether that contributed to the decline in NASCAR's popularity. A lot of people like to point their finger at that. I don't know that there's any hard data to say that, yes, that is absolutely the case, or if it's just a coincidence where the fad of NASCAR in the mid-2000s faded right around the same time that they put in the playoff system. Either way, they've got to do something in order to, to, if nothing else, maintain interest but really grow the interest of the sport and, and try and bring in more of that key demographic, which in turn will bring in more support from those sponsors and partners that NASCAR desperately needs to keep their business running. Okay, Jay. Do you have your mute on? There we go. Yeah, uh, yeah I was trying to find it and make sure I didn't uh, pull a mic and hang up instead because they're really close together there. So I was making sure I got the mute, not the hang up. Um, with that, I mean, I mean, everything Mike said there is true. <laughs> Excuse me. There are certain things that you can change from week to week. We're going to go 
in circle to the right instead of the left. Easy change. What impact it has, you've got to look at that, though. We're going to run a whole new, completely different car. That takes time and uh, research and, and maybe more than what, what even got done to implement that and make it a success. So it all depends on what it is you're talking about. Some of the things, yeah, NASCAR maybe did not change soon enough. Take, for example, just the schedule. We had the same tracks in the same order for, uh, Mike said, forever. I mean, half a century almost. Um, Little changes here and there. Over the last three years, we've seen some major changes like that happen year to year. Uh, Next year, for example, we're going to go street racing in Chicago. Now, that is one on paper, okay, easy change. But it's not. I mean, I, I don't know how long they've been putting thought and process into this. Going back to North Wilkesboro, uh, we already talked about that. Idea was good, bringing back maybe some fans that, that want to see it, but already they've seen some hiccups of, well, we've got a short amount of time to do this, and it's getting, you know, we're going to have to bust our butts. So you can't just say, oh, we're going to change, do it tomorrow. Uh, you know, we've talked about that with rules, all kinds of things. Um, certain ones do take time and a lot of research and thought of not just what is that change going to affect. We're going to have the drivers meet with us every week at the driver's meeting. How does that affect sponsorship meetings and the driver's time, fan interaction? So the ripple effect of what you're doing, and there's a lot of faucets to look at of how that goes out. So you don't want to see what we call the knee-jerk reaction because then there's things you're not thinking about that may become from it. So um, they may have been, I guess, a little slow on some things, but also I think they do do their due diligence that of what also is going to come behind it so we don't have to go from this fire to this fire putting out fires uh, when we make this change. Exactly. Um, I know one of the changes that's coming up for next year, they, they talked about planning that street race in Chicago next year, uh, and the, the sanctioning body is said to have interest in races in several other key cities in the U.S., including the New York City region, as well as internationally. Uh, it's also exploring cities in the West and Pacific Northwest, Denver and Portland, uh, is always Portland is already running an Xfinity Series race. Um, as far as the street race for Chicago, that race in particular is is uh, so important because it is bringing it is targeting that demographic that Mike was talking about, uh, the 18 to 49 year olds or, or whatever that range was. Um, NASCAR is really investing in this. They're hiring or promoting several people to move to Chicago to work on the race full-time, and they're opening an office in the city. Uh, The cost uh, is estimated uh, is more expensive than what they did at the L.A. Coliseum. The industry executives have estimated that NASCAR is likely to invest 15 to 25 million just next year to set up that event. Um, uh, so they're, they're using that event also to promote their TV rights deal. Uh, so there are, like you said, there are so many ripples that come with each of these changes. Um, and I think that's part of what 
people are experiencing, including the drivers, by the way. I think that there is so much change going on, even for the drivers, uh, that has made it more stressful for them. And that's why we're seeing some of them uh, kind of responding the way that they're responding to some things. Uh, but there is more change coming, uh, and and uh, they have to do it. Like Mike said, uh, one of the key targets that NASCAR knows that they need to go after is that 18 to 49-year-old uh, demographic, and that's what this street race is designed uh, all around is reaching that market. Uh, they reach new markets. And, in fact, they said that uh, the people who came to the L.A. Coliseum were not your traditional NASCAR fans. It was a totally new group of fans. The same thing is happening with the street race. They're bringing in a totally different group. It's not the old fans that are buying the tickets for that race. It is the new fans. Uh, so, Obviously, NASCAR is accomplishing what they're setting out to do with some of these changes. They have to bring in new fans uh, in order to uh, up that revenue and address some of these other things that we've been bringing up uh, throughout the night. Uh, so change is it's one of those things we have to adapt or get off of the, the uh, get off of the track because. This is this is necessary, and it is happening. So, Mike, your follow up. Well, it really depends on what the changes are and why they're doing them. Uh, are you gonna? We've talked a lot about trying to attract the 18 to 49 year old demographic, and there's there's right ways to do it and there's wrong ways to do it. NASCAR's got to be careful to make sure that they preserve the core integrity of what the sport is. If they want to transform the sport into a pure sports entertainment type product, well, that might attract more of the 18 to 49 year old demographic, but that probably fundamentally changing the sport like that is probably not the direction that NASCAR should go in if they want to be a racing series like they have been for the previous 75 years. So like Jay said, you're throwing a rock in the pond here. You got to be careful what boats you rock. You've got to make sure that the changes that you're making don't have second and third order effects that negatively impact the core brand of the sport, what the sport fundamentally is. I think doing things like the Chicago Street Race or the L.A. Coliseum, I think those were great moves. They're not all going to pan out. NASCAR will make mistakes. They're, with the pace of change and the radical nature of some of the things that they're going to need to do, Statistically speaking, something is going to flop. Something is going to work out very, very poorly, and that's just how it's going to be. We've seen a lot of issues with the Gen 7 cars, a good example, where a radical change that NASCAR made had some benefits, and it definitely needed to get done, but there's definitely been some issues with it where I'm not going to call the Gen 7 car a flop, but it's definitely some hard lessons learned about better ways to go forward in terms of implementing changes to make sure that when you throw that rock in the pond, you're not causing issues for somebody's boat. So what they're going to do going forward, a lot of that's going to have to do with the TV rights deal. I'm sure the TV, whatever companies are going to potentially bid on carrying that, whether it is traditional broadcast networks, streaming services, some combination thereof, there's going to be a lot of input about what product they want to broadcast on their network and give airtime to. So that's another consideration that NASCAR is going to have to take into account is tailoring the product that they're trying to advertise to these broadcasters as something that they can, they can put onto 
be a marketable platform to get out to the fans. There's a lot of change coming in the sport. The TV rights deal is up in 2025, so that's two years from now when they're really going to get into serious negotiations about this. We're going to see some fundamental changes with the sport. Not all of them are going to be good, but hopefully the overall trajectory is going to be for the better, and the sport comes out of it stronger, better, refreshed, and more competitive in the future. I'm proud of you, Mike. Jay? Yeah, uh, you can't say it any better. Uh, you know, like you said, uh, you still want to maintain the core uh, fan base. I'm trying to think a few years back when um, when NASCAR admitted that maybe they had had alienated that and not listened to them, but they also have to understand you got to bring in the new market, uh, the the demographic you guys are talking about of 18 to 49. So some of these things. For example, I'm not a big fan of necessarily the street course, uh, or at least at this point. We'll see how it happens. I'm willing to accept it. So you've got to find that balance uh, negotiation and, and everybody come to an agreement. Um, having one, I'm more than willing to see how it goes. I didn't like the fact that they took it from Road America. To get something new, you've got to give up something old. Um, but they also realize that with, hey, we maybe gave up something we shouldn't have, say North Wilkesboro, we're bringing that back. So I think they're doing a good job. Uh, Sharon, you said it earlier. I mean, they are almost always in a no-win situation um, when it comes to that. And and the other thing I wanted to say was you mentioned the intertwining, talking about what they're investing in the Chicago uh, street race and and the money they're investing in that. Well, that goes back to what percentage do they get uh, of the television rights, what they're doing with it. So you're right. They all intertwine. Exactly. All of these subjects that we've talked about tonight are are kind of woven within each other uh, as to why things are happening the way they're happening. And uh, I think it's important. Uh, if there's one word that I can put out there for all of us, drivers, fans, everybody, uh, is that it's going to be important that we have the capability to adapt to the situation. Mike's right. Some things are going to work. Some things are not going to work. Uh, bad-mouthing uh, NASCAR is not the answer. <laughs> so we have to learn how to adapt. We have to learn how to go with that flow and let work, and trust that NASCAR is working on uh, how they're going to uh, deal with some of the issues that come up. They're doing that with the next-gen car. They have been doing it. Some of the drivers kind of didn't know that that was happening, and they went out there with information that wasn't necessarily uh, valid information. I'm glad that NASCAR responded. Um, but these kind of things are going to happen throughout all of this, uh, and we're going to have to adapt and have a better understanding and appreciation for all of these changes that are happening within NASCAR. We're going to like some. We're not going to like other things. My, uh, Jay mentioned the street course. Uh, some of us are, are not exactly excited about the street course race. Others of us are excited about it. Uh, and NASCAR has already said they, that they're getting interest from that major demographic that is so important to them, and that is a good thing. Even though we might not like it, 
it's still a good thing that they're pulling in this new demographic that they need to pull in in order to sustain themselves over a period of time. So that's the key word, adapting, and we all need to do that as we go through these changes. Jeff Burton said it. This is not the first time that NASCAR has gone through major changes, um, and it's not going to be the last time that NASCAR is going through major changes. Uh, so uh, they've been through this before. They know how to weather uh, the situation and manage their way through it. Uh, are they going to be perfect? Yep. Nope. They're going to make mistakes, and but they're going to adapt. Uh, and we saw Steve Phelps. Uh, adapt to the situation with the drivers by an implementing a weekly meeting. All of us are going to need to adapt in some way, shape, or form. So that, that's my final word on the subject. And we've gone way over time. So let's go ahead and do our roundtable here. Uh, Mike, let's start with you. Sure, Mike underscore Rizal on Twitter, Mike double underscore O on Reddit. My racing season is coming to an end. My junk of a race car actually held together for the weekend, so that was good. I wasn't very fast, but at least I had a good time. I'm looking forward to the next month of NASCAR racing. Unfortunately, my work schedule is picking up for the rest of the month, so I'm not going to be as, as regular as I have been over the past two months. I'll keep you posted. I don't think I'm going to be available Thursday, but I look forward to talking to you all again whenever that next time is. Okay, Jake. Uh, you can follow me on Facebook, Michael Hoosman, MoparMJ8, on Twitter and Instagram. And I will be here on Thursday for the preview show. And as always, Mike, if need be, I will represent you and try to live up to your standards as best I can. He does a good job of doing that when you're not here, Mike. Well, that's good oh. to hear. Okay. I am Van for Racing Sight on Twitter. Fan for Racing blog and radio everywhere else, including fanforracing.com, where we have our player uh, for the Fan for Racing radio show. So uh, definitely looking forward to the weekend of racing. Uh, I am going to be on the road this week because uh, we are headed out to Las Vegas. Uh, so I'll be doing the radio show from the hotel on Thursday night. Uh, so let's hope that everything goes well. I, I'm I'm hoping that uh, there won't be any issues that come up with that. Uh, but Jay and I will be here Thursday night starting at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time to preview the races that are taking place out at Las Vegas Motor Speedway uh, this weekend, including the Bull Ring for the ARCA West Series. Um, and that's their penultimate race. Uh, that is the next to the last race before they race their season finale out at uh, Phoenix Raceway uh, in early November. So um, uh, stay tuned for our preview show, and uh, we thank all of our listeners for tuning in. We appreciate all of you. And Mike and Jay, I appreciate you guys for being here tonight and uh, helping out with the radio show. Uh, Jay, in Sal's absence, I'm glad you were able to uh, step in. So uh, with that, I think we're ready to call it a night, guys. Good night, everyone. All right, good night. Good night, everybody.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.